Hi, this is Jonathan Sugarfoot Moppet, drummer for Michael Jackson and the Jacksons, and you're listening to the MJ Cast. The following is a presentation from the MJ Cast, the internet's premier podcast on all things Michael Jackson. You're listening to the MJ Cast by MJ fans or MJ fans. The idea is to uh, innovate, or else why, why am I doing it? When I create my music, I feel like an instrument of nature. You let it create itself, really. I know I do. And I love to entertain. That's that's one of my favorite things. I love you! <laughs> I love my fans. Just simply Michael Jackson. Welcome to the MJ Cast, your source of news and discussion on the King of Pop. Hello and welcome to the MJ Cast. I am Q, one of your hosts for today, and today we're interviewing one of Michael's most long-standing collaborators, potentially his most long-standing. Jonathan Sugarfoot Moffat worked with Michael Jackson and the Jacksons as their tour drummer starting in 1979 with the Destiny Tour and continued to work with them later for the Triumph Tour, the Victory Tour, Michael's 1988 Grammy Awards performance, the History World Tour, his 30th anniversary shows, and eventually, this is it. Not only did Jonathan Sugarfoot have the honour of collaborating closely with the Jacksons, but he has also toured with artists such as Madonna, George Michael, Prince, Elton John, and Lionel Richie. Jonathan, it's an honour to have you here on the MJ cast. How are you going? I'm doing pretty good. I'm doing pretty good. A little, little mistake in there. I never toured with Prince. I, I worked in the studio with Madonna, and Prince was on the same song, "Keep It Together." So I've never toured. I want. I don't want inf- misinformation to get out there. So I've never toured with Prince. Although he has, he has asked me about touring with him, which never, just never came uh, about because he was at a, uh, a lot of the after parties at the, the Jackson shows, Elton shows, and cameo shows, and he he speak to me and, and give me a, co- a combination of my performance. And and he said, asked me about playing with him, but it just never happened. I think because I was Michael's drummer, there was a bit of a conflict there. So, but I never, I want to correct that. I never played live with Prince, just in the studio on the same song with Madonna. We, we played at different times, but we played in the studio, same song for Madonna. Oh, thank you for the clarification. That's a pretty cool story on its own. Yes, yes, and there was a couple of things. I was, also did the Grammys in '88 with Michael, and um, and I did the, the uh, Diana Ross "I Want Muscles" track with him. He produced, you know, I did that with him as well. You know, there's a couple other things that I'd done with Mike with Michael as well um, that was left out. So many things, so too many to mention. Almost, it's been quite yeah. the career for you. It's been a blessing, you know, to work with, with Michael. So let's um let's take it right back to the very beginning. We love to hear about people's early lives and how they got, you know, into music. When did you first start playing drums? Well, I was um, six years old, and my father came back from work. He worked at the post office in New Orleans, Louisiana, where I was born and raised, and where I'm from. And um, he was supervisor there, and one of his coworkers sons played music and he came back from work that afternoon uh, with the notion of asking me and my two other brothers if we wanted to play music to keep us safe and out of streets and everything and keep our minds on something positive so we said yes and um i'm the youngest of the three brothers and um so he went from the oldest to the youngest and he asked my oldest brother um what would he like to play and he said i'd like to play guitar and um but he didn't he changed his mind and decided to play bass guitar and so my father said, fine. My middle brother said um, he wanted to play guitar. 
and um and, and my father said okay fine now i only knew guitar and drums but i wanted to play guitar really bad to be up front and i saw these um, concerts with the guitarists up there getting all the, the attention and action so i like wanted that spot too so when he came to me, he asked me if I wanted to play guitar. And I said, he asked me what I want to play music. And I said, yes. He said, which instrument? And I said, I want to play guitar. He said, well, we can't have all guitars. You got to play something different. And the only other thing I knew was drums. And I said, all right, I'll play drums. I was like stuck with drums. <laughs> <laughs> and, I, so, and it turned out to be, you know, I started getting into it, learning my first beats and, and learning that, finding out that I can coordinate my hands, which I started on a parade drummer. Um, in my very, very beginning, I only had a parade drum for the first two years. Uh, I had some liking it, having control and being able to dictate what my hands are doing and making sort of a musical sense out of it and the rhythms. And it became exciting for me and uh, challenging for me. So I got into it. I loved it. And after that, uh, my, my father, every birthday for the next three, four years, got me additional pieces to the drum set. You know, the next birthday, he got me a bass drum and a cymbal. And then the next birthday, he got me two rack times. And the, th the next birthday, he got me a floor time and two more cymbals. And by the time I was nine years old, I had a whole set. And I could play. But, you know, all the time, I had a year to learn how to incorporate the other elements of the drum set. You know, oh, and I got a hi-hat cymbal at one, at one point, too. So uh, by that point, I was playing in, at dances and parties and talent shows at nine years old and um, block parties and and different events like that and school talent shows and things. And so I did that. And at 10 years old, my brothers, man, they were older than me. So they wanted to go into nightclubs and play. So they sneak me into nightclubs at 10 years old and I make money. And they, and they give me some money. And I say, what's this for? You know, and they say, this is going to get paid for doing this. I said, wow, this is cool. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm this little 10-year-old boy. And at the nightclub, they sneak me in the back door. And I'd play. And my mother and father say, as long as he don't go by the bar and start drinking and nothing like that. So you, your guys take care of him. And it was fine. I come at home at 1.30, 2.30 in the morning, unload my drums from the, the car, you know, my brother's help. And then I wake up and I go to sleep and wake up at uh, 6 o'clock, 5.30, 6 o'clock that morning. Only a two or three hours sleep and go to school. And it was just an uh, interesting life, you know. So that's how I started off. Wow. So you started like really not long after the sort of same age as Michael started as a kid in the clubs, in different venues, touring around the local area. Incredible. It's very interesting that Michael and our lives in very, very many ways are very parallel. Now, I always say that God had planned um, on us being together all along. It was his intention because uh, great many things in his life that happened in his career uh, that we all know publicly uh, it was the same as in parallel to mine, which most people don't know publicly. But once, you know, my book comes out and, and things come out as it is gradually, like now, you know, people are going to start uh, comparing it and, and uh, making the determination that uh, these guys were meant to, to, to be together. I was being groomed to be his drummer when I was a little boy. And um, he was being groomed to be the artist that I would work for. So at that point in 79, in February of 79, uh, God had planned on getting us together. We got I got lost on the freeway and found him. Him and his brothers, you know, <laughs> that they had found a musical director. Said they were auditioning drummers, who was a friend of mine, and auditioning drummers. So uh, once I, I can't tell the whole story now because nobody will buy the book. <laughs> so <laughs> it was it was uh, destiny, and it was miraculous, absolutely miraculous. So when you read the story, I hear it. In the book, it'll be an audio CD where I'll be talking about my story and telling it verbally like this. So you'll be able to read along as you hear it, me speaking it. 
and you will, your hand your hair on your arms will stand up because everybody's does when I tell them the miraculous story of how I got with the Jacksons and I was a fan of them just like everybody else when I was a little boy and uh, all of a sudden I was you know I was from from being not I wouldn't say nobody because no one is nobody but I from a, a aspiring drummer uh, just made his way to California a month and a half later yeah, I was with the, one of the biggest groups in the industry, Michael Jackson and the Jacksons. Or at that time, the Jackson Five or the Jacksons. And um, like I said, my story will, will give you chills and make you feel and believe that miracles are true. Well, I was going to, before we sort of ask you about sort of the Jackson Five and, and things, Jacksons, what sort of other artists have inspired you throughout your career from when you started so young right up until now? Well, I, I, I'm uh, born in the 50s and I grew up through the music in the 60s, and 70s, 80s, 90s, on up to now. But in my growing years, uh, nurturing years, I, in, in the 60s, there was uh, all the, um, the artist Elvis. With the, I was a big fan of Elvis Presley. And then um, the Beatles came out in 63, 64, or 62. And I got into them, and my brother's like older, but any, my older brother got into Rolling Stones, and I got introduced to them. Around that same time, Time Motown had jumped, just started jumping off with all their artists. And I liked the grooves of their music and the R&B of their music. And, and uh, I got into uh, a lot of the artists, even though I didn't know who the drummers were at that time, because they didn't label the albums with the musicians. They didn't give the respect to them at that point just yet. So I just just be inspired by the beat on a particular song and sit down and figure it out and learn it. And um, then I'm playing a Temptation song or Smoke Around with a Miracle song or uh, the Jackson 5 song. You know, um, different artists that were in Motown. So I got into that sound and those feels of, of uh, playing drums. The Stax Records artists, you know, that um, were on Stax Records, same thing. They didn't give credit to the drummers or the musicians. So I just learned the songs that I liked and I thought the beats were really exciting. And then James Brown started getting more prominent and I absolutely got turned turned out by his drummers. His drummers are amazing. Clyde Stubblefield, unfortunately, rest in peace. We just lost him. Jabo Sparks and we lost. We, we haven't lost him yet, thank God. Uh, and Melvin, I forget Melvin's last name. There's three drummers that were like really the cornerstones of his earlier stuff in you know, the mid-60s and early 60s and late 60s. I got into them really, really heavily and learned all of their nuances and stuff and their percolating groove, so to speak. And then Zigaboo from the Meters, my hometown boy, I got into him. They used to call me Little Z because I had learned everything he had done on all his records and played it just like him pretty much. And and people started calling me Little Z instead of Sugarfoot at one point. Um, hmm. But he was a huge inspiration, my first inspiration, as far as a, directly as a drummer. And um, I still you know, pay homage to him. He's a good friend of mine. All these people have become friends of mine who I've met at some point or other. And then I started getting into rock. I started getting into um, the, the Stones, you know, Charlie Watts. I started getting into Led Zeppelin, you know, John Bonham. I started getting Carmine of Peace, you know, Vanilla Fudge and all the groups. He's been with a multitude of groups in uh, Rod Stewart. And I started getting into, after that, Fusion, Lenny White and Harvey Mason playing smooth jazz and Fusion. I started getting into Tony Williams and, and the writer Michael Walden. And a lot of the fusion drummers started exciting me then. And I started growing my craft into uh, fusion techniques and, and patterns and rhythms. 
and stuff and time signatures and with them and them and uh quite a few other drummers you know and then um i started getting into doobie brothers and a lot of other um, rock groups uh, grand funk railroad don brewer was a huge influence on me i love don brewer's work and um and then i got into one of my absolute favorites artists and groups was uh tawa power david garibaldi's a huge influence much like zigaboo which Garibaldi states in, his, states in his conversations and his articles that he was influenced by Zigaboo as well. So I understand the way he turns the rhythms around and the way he's got all the elements of the beat percolating like Zigaboo, much like Zigaboo did, but in a different slick way, more smooth and slick way. Um, his own t- uh, uh, touch to it and technique to it. And then I started getting to more rock and roll groups and and um, and, and pop and, and R B groups too. And I started getting to funk, you know, and when they start coming around, you can function, um, Slave, uh, Steve Arrington is huge. I'm a big fan of Steve Arrington. Cameo, who I'm working with now currently in the late 70s, I start getting into them is a lot. And, uh, and um, a lot of the treasured funk R&B bands, you know, Daz Band and, uh, and um, I mentioned SOS Band and, and Barquets in the 60s and 70s. And uh, all the funk bands, you know, of, the, of that two de- decade era, I start getting into them as well. And uh, then, of course, uh, at some point, Michael decided to, um, and of course, absolutely, I, I can't forget the Jackson, all the Jackson stuff, as the Jacksons, as well as Jackson 5. But at some point, Michael decided to go solo. And that's when um, um, he called me to do to work with him and, and start doing things with him in, in the late 80s and, and uh, 90s. And, and a couple of which I missed, you know, because I, I also got called by Madonna, who saw me on the victory tour in 1984 with Michael and the brothers at uh, Dodger Stadium and, and told the manager, that's my drummer, and called me for her first, first tour, Virgin tour, and a True Blue album I did with her. And um, so I worked with Madonna five years doing the Virgin tour and the True Blue album. Then I did um, the 1987 Who's That Girl tour, and um, I did the uh, Dick Tracy soundtrack. And I did the Like a Prayer album in 1990, and I toured on a Blind Ambition tour, my last tour with her. And on and on, and then, you know, I don't know if you want me to carry forth with the the, the um, timeline of things, or that's a further question. I might have got ahead of myself, but I got going. And it's mainly, it's mainly- <laughs> we, got, we got a lot of questions coming up around Michael and your work with him, that's for sure. So, okay, yeah. so it went on from Janet to... Back yeah. with Michael, ninety six, ninety seven, for the history tour, his last tour, unfortunately, and that was on that. And then I joined him, rejoined him for the two thousand one, you know, um, it's a thirtieth anniversary special in New York, which is was amazing event. It was unbelievable, man. It was incredible. And then I rejoined him when he called me for this is it, you know, and and, um, and with a unfor- very unfortunate result uh, of that experience, you know, heartbreaking. Wow, you, you sure definitely have great taste in music by the sound of it. And um, speaking of those early Jacksons and Jackson 5 records that you were getting into back in you know, the 70s and the 60s, what, what were some of the records that they were putting out that you sort of gravitated towards the most? Well, in the very beginning, of course, it was like ABC, I Want Your Back, Stop the Love You Save, save I'll Be There, you know, Mama's Pearl, uh, Looking Through My Window, um, all the songs of those, of those natures and the early Jackson stuff, you know, and then later in the 70s, the Dance Machine and, and uh, Blame It on the Boogie, you know, early 70s, 80s and stuff like that. And all the songs of that. And, and then they got into uh, 
the the the, the Triumph album and, and uh, all the albums, all the albums since then that they put out through 1990. I actually played on 2300 Jackson Street record. I played on some songs on that one. I love that. That's, that's one of your favorites, Jamin. You yeah, it's such an underrated album. It's brilliant. Yes, I think so too. I agree with you. You know, um, you know, I just I, I don't know if it's it was uh, it was a backlash for them not being with Michael anymore or whatever, but it didn't get promoted as well as it should have been. It was a good album, a really good album, and I think it had some great songs on it. And I was, I think I played on three or four songs on that one, over the up stuff. So, um, but I'm, I'm, you know, I'm kinship to all the Jackson stuff because I love it. And not only is that I work with them, but before I got with them, I was a fan for the, the decade or so uh, more that I, that I was exposed to them, just like everybody else since they first came out and emerged on the scene. Jonathan, what was your first big break in the industry? That was Michael and the Jacksons. <laughs> that was it. That was the I big break. I took a chance, you know, on, on an ocean and from a um, from a, a call from a friend who I, uh, had called me and said, Jermaine heard me on a tape of our local band, which he had the band broke up. He moved to California. And um, like I said, I can't tell the whole story because then you know, my book would be, be like uh, firewood and a fire, <laughs> for a fireplace. <laughs> But in, the, the book is always better than the, the movie or whatever. So the yeah, podcast the book, in this the case. book is always going to be better. <laughs> yeah, they, uh, he mentioned that the Jermaine had heard me on the tape and asked who the drummer was, and can uh, he get me out to California? He lived there out here in California, so uh, it took me about six months to make up my mind. I kept going back and forth because I had never lived away from home, and I was a little afraid and nervous. I was very shy back then, very timid and shy, and so I was a little, ner- uh, quite a bit nervous and afraid to move from home and the safety of home everything I knew and the six months I was going back and forth I'm going it's going to be exciting the next thing I know next day or two a week I said no way I'm not going out there I get stuck out there like, like, I get lost and somebody be homeless or something out there I get scared and I go back and I get excited <laughs> I gotta do this no I gotta stop being like that I gotta do this all that battles within me for six months and then finally in December of 78 I was thinking about it really heavily and uh, torn, which we had to do. And then it hit me that, Jonathan, you may be an old man um, and you'll be on the porch at the house on the porch, rocking in your rocking chair, <laughs> back and forth. And you'll think to yourself, I wonder what would have happened if I had just gone and given it a chance. If I had just had faith and trust in myself and faith in God and just given it that chance. I wonder how different my life would be as opposed to being here sitting in this chair old and dilapidated and, and having done nothing with my music. And uh, but lived on the dream that never happened. I wonder what would happen if I had gone. And that thought right there, picture myself being old and decrepit and having done nothing with my music. It changed me, and I said, I am going. I got to get this, take this chance. I'm going. And I decided, and I thought about it, I said, I can always go for like six months, and if it doesn't work out, I'll always come back. Home will be here. I got to give myself this chance. And I got determined, and I decided to drive out in the middle of January. And then a month and a half later, guess what? That was God tapping me on the shoulder, saying, go, go, you're going to be all right. That, that little notion kept being in my mind. Something was telling me. No, just go. Trust me. It's going to be all right. That kept reoccurring over and over again. Trust me. Go. Don't be afraid. Watch and see. It's going to be all right. That kept reverberating in my mind, in my spirit, something like a voice or something. And I, when I decided definitively to go, I did. And as proof, a month and a half later, I ran into my friend on the freeway who was from New Orleans and they told me that the brothers were auditioning drummers right then. And he decided to tell them about me. I asked him to tell him the guy you've been talking about 
because he was telling them about me all along, is in town. He just wants a chance. And he said, this is the last day of auditions. I don't know. They may have a drummer. They got somebody coming in today. This is the last day. I asked him, well, please ask him, just do this for me. Ask him with the extended one day just to give me a chance. Ask him that. He said, okay, when I go in there this afternoon, I'll ask him. And, and, he, and he called me about 11 30 at night. He said, he said, Sugarfoot, be at mother's house at 3.30 in the afternoon tomorrow. They extended it. They're going to give you a chance. Now, if I didn't, wouldn't have listened to that little voice when I was thinking about it, New Orleans not going and I wouldn't have listened to that voice and had that, that notion in my mind. Who knows? God might have put it there of me being an old man, missing the opportunity of lifetime, and which it turned out to be. If I wouldn't have listened to that voice, I wouldn't be doing this interview with you right now. You wouldn't know who the heck I am. And nobody in the world would have known I existed or played drums. But sometimes you have to listen to those little voices that, that tell you things that's trying to guide you and, and, and deliver you to your destination of your destiny. So I'm glad I did, because I get to do this great interview with you guys and have fun. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Terrific advice to to listen to that little intuition and that voice. That was, yeah, amazing yeah. advice for people out there. So in essence, I, went, I auditioned and I got it. And after two, there two weeks of rehearsal, the last person, me, who did it, I got the, the job with the Jacksons. And I've been, you know, you know my history from there. So it was it was a miraculous time and a miraculous event in my life and and decision you know life-changing decision I, I had to make faced with i just faced it on and i'm so glad i did because i've seen the world so many times and been able to share my gift with the world and enjoy playing drums and and um, have fun at things and, um, and meet a lot of people in the world which is wonderful wonderful and i've read online that the song that that did it for you was shake your body yeah, shake your body down to the ground. It was a, was a hit at the time, around the time, and, and it was um, interesting because back in New Orleans when it came out, it was the coolest beat ever. Everybody, every drummer was defined if you can play shake your body or not. You were defining whether you was a good drummer or not, a bad drummer. <laughs> <laughs> Most people couldn't play it. Uh, and the thing is, you know, is that they couldn't play it without leaving any element of it off. You know, uh, I had missing uh, something missing in the beat, in the song, in the groove. They're trying to do something else on the kid. So, you know, in a way, sometimes, how do I put this? Sometimes ignorance can be bliss because I didn't know how the guy was doing it. I just knew he was doing it and it sounded like it sounded. And then I got to know Swelly. He's human. If he can do it, I can do it. I just got to figure it out. So I got to experiment on the drums with that beat, putting the needle back, you know, because we had the, the, the needles, 45s and LPs. And I had to get off the drums each time when I make a mistake and put it back and forth and run back and forth to the kit. So I just figured out and pictured in my mind as I'm listening to the beat, uh, a video in my mind of how he had to be doing it, crossing his hands, not to leave out the hi-hat. You know, and then I started scientifically experimenting in different ways. And then uh, Eureka, I came up with the way to do it and, and nothing was left out. So I had little when I did that, what sealed it for me with the auditions was that beat. But little did they know I had been I had worked that out back in New Orleans. And, you know, when the first record first dropped, then I had to play it on a recording session for a producer at Alan Toussaint's world-famous studio in New Orleans. He's a great producer, historic producer down there, who had um, uh, uh, one of his staff member producers, and I used to work for him doing demos, and he was producing this woman or this girl, and he wanted to steal that song. <laughs> so straight out, rip it off. So um, I had learned it already, and so I told him I could play it. 
And so we got in the studio and I played it for them. So, but the brothers didn't know that. So, of course, when I auditioned, they were shocked. They were like, okay, we're going to see if you can play this. Nobody came in and could play it. <laughs> they, I was pre-prepared. I already played on a record that basically the guys stole it. <laughs> so from, but uh, anyway, I, 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 they, they called that song after playing uh, Stop the Love You Save. I want you back, ABC, I'll be there. Then that's when Tito said, okay, okay, we're going to see if you can play this. And uh, he said, do you know how to play Shake Your Body Down to the Ground? He said it with attitude, with his arm across the neck of his guitar, and had a posture like, we're going to see these guys. He had his head cocked to the side, and, you know, his head was cocked to the side, like, yeah, yeah, right, we, here comes another sucker. He's he going to think he can play it, we're going to see this. You can play it. Can you play Shake Your Body Down to the Ground? I said, yeah, I can play that. And I said it with so much happy confidence. He said, he, he sat up and said, what? You can play Shake Your Body Down to the Ground? I said, yeah, I can play that. I had total confidence because I knew it. He said, okay, okay. And everybody looking at each other. They was mumbling, uh, laughter and murmuring in there and in the room. And um, it was a studio at Havenhurst in the, the Brothers and the Family Studio. And, and they said, okay, we're going to see if you can play this. And so um, I said, okay, let's go. And, he, and they counted off and I stopped playing it. And about 30 seconds in the song, Randy was there, and Jackie was there, Marlon was there, Tito was there, Michael was not there. Um, and, and all of a sudden, from across the room, Randy comes walking towards me, and I'm playing it, and, and everybody starts looking at each other. And the band members were there, you know, the band members were there. And they're like looking at each other, puzzled look on their face. I said, my, But I said to myself, oh, man, I'm blowing it. I'm, I'm screwing it up. They're all looking at me funny. I'm thinking that, you know, and I'm playing it. I said, I'm going home. They're not going to take me. And, and Randy came over toward me and looked at me, he turned his head to look under the hi-hat and the snare drum, and he looking around, and he looked at the guys with this funny look, and he put his hand on his mouth, and I'm saying, oh, man, you're blowing it. What are you doing wrong? And, and then he said, oh, wait, 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 wait. He waved his hand. Wait, you guys, wait, wait, stop. Sugar, stop. And I said, what? Well, I'm, I'm, I'm playing it wrong? He said, no, no, no. Just play it again. Play it again one more time. So I said, okay, okay. And I started playing it again, that speed. And he said, no, no, he stopped me again. No, play it slow, play it slow. I said, oh, okay, I've never played it slow before. I'll do it slow. So I played it slow where he can see the exchanges of things. And I start playing it slow. And he's looking at me, at me playing and, and, and analyzing my foot, my hand, both hands, and the way I'm crossing over to the times and different things. And then he grabs his face like real quickly and suddenly and say, oh, and do his head back and, and walk and stumble back from the, uh, my drums and looking at the people and the guys in the room and say, wait, wait, wait. And they start laughing and, and talking and mumbling each other and Jackie and Marlon whispering each other ears, smiling. I said, I'm thinking to myself, man, they laughing at me. I must be really screwing this <laughs> up. They were laughing at me and stuff. And that's when Randy came back over and said, no, no. I said, what's wrong? I'm playing it wrong? And then Randy came to me and like laughing and smiling and said, no, no, Foot. You know, you don't understand. I said, what? He said, that beat was a three-part overdub. I said, three-part? What is that? I didn't know what overdub was. He said, three-part <laughs> overdub. He said, that beat was played three times, three separate sections. The drummer couldn't play it all at once. So we had him go play the main beat. And there was kick and snare hats with straight eight notes. And um, and then we had to go back on a separate pass of recordings and overdub on a different track, the hi-hat part that opens and closes at certain intervals. And then he said we had to go back on a third pass and overdub the, the time parts that interwoven in the, in the pattern. And here you are playing it all at one time and nobody else who came in could play it at one time. And I say, oh, really? Why they couldn't play it? And I was just puzzled. And I say, really? Why? And they bust up laughing. And he said, oh, and then he put his hand on my shoulder. He said, Sugarfoot, you are a drummer. You are a drummer. 
And he said, yeah, you are a drummer. And I said, oh, really? Thank you. I was thank you, thank you. <laughs> you know, he said Jermaine had first sent for me. He's the one that my friend got the call uh, at first that asked me to come to LA and um, be with with him on some project. I never found out what it was about. But that's when Randy said, "No, no, you our drummer. For, Jermaine's not getting you. We we got you now. Jermaine's not getting you. <laughs> our drummer." And I said, "Oh, okay." <laughs> so that's how I got with the Jacksons. He said, "You our drummer," and then they told me, uh, "Well." Uh, uh, Joseph, they call him Joseph, their father, and said, Joseph want to talk to you. And uh, so now he said, uh, come out in the yard. We ended everything because, you know, I, was, I had the gig. And, he's, and I went in the yard walking around in the field of the grass with Joseph talking business. And the first time talking with anything about that, my first tour ever. And he said, the, bro, the boys like you. They really like you. They want you to be the drummer. You want to be the Jackson 5 drummer? You want to be the Jackson drummer? Drummer for the Jackson, my boys? I said, yeah, that'd be great. I love that. He said, okay, yeah, we, they really want you. You, you. you hired. And that's how I got the game. Jonathan, that is honestly, out of all the, the years we've been doing this show, I think that's the best story, the best told story I think we've heard. Really? <laughs> I, I cannot wipe the smile from my face. That was you amazing. Paint, you painted a picture that was incredible. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. I'm glad you enjoyed my story. I can't it's, wait for that book. <laughs> yeah. Wow. <laughs> yes. I mean, I'll give it more detail in the book, of course. Of and, course. Uh, and I'll do a um, great recording of it, and I'll tell every aspect of it that happened and transpired from, from the beginning of um, that whole episode that got me here. And um, the miraculous story is just, it's just unbelievable. But, yeah, that's how I got my first professional gig was with the Jacksons. And that's how it transpired uh, as far as the Shake Your Body Down winning me the, the audition. I didn't know. Like I say, ignorance is bliss sometimes. I didn't know that the guy, I couldn't see him doing when I put the record on. I couldn't see how he did it. I just know he did it. I was ignorant to the fact that it was a three-part overdub, that he had to cheat and do it. And um, I just figured he can do it. I can do it. He's a human being. I can do it. I got to figure this out. <laughs> And if I get this, it'll be really cool. That was my thing as a young young man. I get this, it'll be really cool, you know. So, and he's doing it, so I, I want to do that. So that was my challenge to myself, and um, it worked out. It worked out wonderful.
Hey, this is Taj Jackson of 3T, and you're listening to the MJ Cast. We we spend a lot of time as as Michael Jackson fans talking about those later tours like Bad, Dangerous, History, you know, This Is It, all of that kind of thing. But I think some of the tours that get missed in the conversation a little bit are those early tours like Destiny, Triumph, and Victory. I want you to talk to us about the Jacksons as live performers. Like how hands on were they in their tours in the seventies and eighties? How hands on? They were absolute in absolute control. It was their vision. You know, uh, their project, their their um, um, their endeavor, and they were absolutely controlled. I don't know who they planned with as far as production people and all that stuff. I wasn't privy to those meetings and things like that. But the things that we were described by them to do as far as show arrangements, the brothers had total control over everything. And that was collectively, not just Michael's, everybody. All the brothers had input. And um, it was a great, I mean, a great experience for me. And you got to understand that was my first uh, professional tour ever. And um, I was a learning. I was in school. I was, in a, I was all eyes and ears, pencils sharpened and ready, and tablets ready to be written on. I mean, mentally and emotionally, because I don't read music. I don't know if I said that, but I don't read music. Everything's from the spirit and the soul. And memory retention, because I don't read music, you know, compensated by developing a sharp uh, memory retention as to what I hear. And a few times I can get it, you know, a time or two or a few times I can get it and, and mimic it. So it's all mimicking. So they come in and explain what they wanted to do, and or, or we get we all get uh, copies of the cassettes at that time. That was what was happening. Get copies of the cassettes and uh, of, of the songs, you know, the record songs, album songs, and we learn them. That was our homework. We get that like a few days a week, few maybe sometime a week or two before, and we do our homework as professionals. And um, it was my first time being a professional, but I do it because I knew what it took. I wanted to be on that level, and I didn't want to miss the opportunity. So I took it so seriously, uh, very seriously, to to go in there knowing what my part was, and um, and doing it very, very well, just like the record. It was always in my mind, just like the record, so I can impress them. So uh, I did my homework when I show up. Then we start dissecting the songs as far as um, how much of a, a song we're going to do in the, the intro, the, the first verse, second verse, or if we're going to do a second verse or not, a bridge, if we're going to go to the bridge or not, um, if we're going to have a breakdown, are we going to have a, a solo, extra solo section in the song, are we going to stretch out the ending, the tag of the song, and you know, the vamp of the song, and all of that was done in the rehearsals, uh, and the brothers' ideas, and you know, I, I kept quiet all of that time because I was like I said, I'm in school. You don't talk when the teacher's talking and all of them were teachers for me. And I was learning from, you know, the best, what I considered the best, you know. So my, I had great, great love and admiration for them. Love grew even more um, as I went along through the years with them. But my admiration was always at its fullest when I started with them first, started with them. I had great admiration. So, of course, in respect. And so, of course, I adhered to what they wanted. I was learning. I was a sponge and absorbing everything I could. I was like Michael. Michael's like a sponge. Me and Michael are parallel, like I said, in many, many ways and levels. And I was like a sponge and absorbing from all of them because they all had great ideas and very intelligent and very creative because they had been in the business so very long, you know, since youth. And um, I had so much to learn. So Destiny Tour was my training ground and my proving ground. And, um, and it was fun, fun tour. It only lasted, I think, three months. Um, but it was an experience of my lifetime because it being the first time is the experience of my lifetime. I mean, all the other tours, even the big, big ones are magnificent and great. But you always remember your first time you know, because that's your challenging time and the one you overcame to, to be that, you know, become that, what you wanted to be. 
and sought to be. So Destiny Tour was, was that. And we played all the hit songs from the Jackson 5, of course, and then the, from the um, Destiny album that was featured was out there promoting. And all of those songs was fun to play. And great arrangements. And it was just a small band. One keyboard player, the musical director who got me to audition, my friend James McField, who's from New Orleans. And his mother's house is, was a, a block, and still is a block from my mother's house. And he was in rival bands back there. And he was, he was a wonderful spirit and a great player, and concert pianist and uh, pop pianist. And, and he, 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 he had a lot of input with the brothers. And I, I can't afford to leave that out because I mentioned the brothers doing everything but no it was also including the expertise of James who helped guide them too and had great great ideas because the arrangements of the show were fantastic they would collaborate with him put it all together they had uh, really really uh, great ideas as well but he would formulate the whole thing and, and if they had something really creative he'd go around and with them and how, uh, figure out how to incorporate it within the song the arrangement or the embodiment of the song within the show as a collective. So, yeah, they they had a great collaborator with James. He's a great friend of mine. And still to this day, we talk. Now we're back in touch and we talk and reminisce. When I go to New Orleans, I go down there and talk with him and hang out. He comes to my mother's house. And and uh, we have great love and admiration for each other. We're like brothers and kindred spirits. As we were when we first met playing in bands, rival bands in New Orleans, we hit it off right away. And we've been that way all our lives. It's pretty uh, remarkable. We're close, close friends, and and he helped guide me. He helped groom me as well. You know, his his tutelage in that period of time was was, was most uh, most uh, beneficial to me and effective for me because I trusted in him. I knew he knew what the brothers wanted, and you know he knew I had the skills and and stuff, and I knew he had the knowledge, and um and and he had also he had the ways the brothers liked to work. So I just listened to him and did what he said. They liked what they like and. And he guided me and things like that. And he did a lot of the breaks and the accents and, and taught me all that stuff. Because they were doing shows before I joined them. I replaced a drummer that had left. And so we were doing that show. I had to learn the show. like, And I only had three days, three <laughs> measly days to learn the whole show. My first professional tour ever. I had only three days. And I don't, <sighs> even, I don't even read. So I had to memorize everything, every aspect of, aspect of it in three days rehearsal. And then we hit the road. <laughs> so superhuman jonathan superhuman <laughs> i don't know about that but was was like you said destiny you you have such fond memories of the destiny tour it was like your first was um destiny your favorite or if not what was your favorite of the jackson's tours and why i i, I love that tour and it was amazing and it was learning and, and it was a great show I, um sometimes listen to the, the audio recordings i have of rehearsals and of some of the shows and i still you know like that i really like that show and it was new for me you know what else was new for me about that show it was my first introduction to costumes you know stage costumes i had never been around that kind of stuff. new orleans you just put some clothes on you got from the local uh, hip-hop store or a, a store that was like the local fashion with the bell bottoms you tie your shirt up and let your stomach stick out or something like that muscle shirts and you know stuff like that you know tight pants and that was a nightclub scene in new orleans but these were actual stage costumes for a professional concert tour and i got i got to for my first experience on the destiny tour why took a look at their amazing costumes to me at the time amazing costumes and they gave me some old jackson costumes to wear myself and i wow i've got old jackson five costumes and i'd never been in that element of it you know it was exciting for me to to be in the whole show business element of it that even went to the costumes but then i we went um 
we, we and then after that, with a tour you mentioned, uh, failed to mention was off the wall tour was uh, the second half of uh, of '79, uh, which was a combination. Michael had already dropped off the wall album was out there to promote that and the Destiny album, so we called it tend to call it the off the wall Destiny slash Destiny album uh, tour, I should say. And that one was in the fall winter of '79. Uh, Destiny was uh, from uh, March first. And we finished around, I think, right before June 1st, something like that, early June. And then we went back out September 1st and 2nd. And then the first show was in, it was my real treat was in my hometown, New Orleans. So I got the, got the first time to play professional on a professional level in my hometown for my, my family and my friends and my city to see me with the Jacksons. So that was pretty incredible for me. And that was an off-the-wall tour, which was amazing. And you could feel the step-up it was that, and see the step-up it was that from uh, Destiny, because there was a lot more production, stage production, and, and tremendous more lighting. And uh, not tremendous, but a lot more lighting. Uh, and uh, the stage was different. And and uh, the show, we changed the show around a bit, you know, to add the off-the-wall stuff in there. And you can see it on YouTube. And, and they got... Incredible costumes, that way better than the last ones. It was a pretty amazing. The brothers' costume was, was amazing, even more so, which got me excited because I'm into fashion and stuff like that and designing clothes. And so that's uh, another hidden element that um, had me excited for, for for doing concerts because of the, the uniforms and the costumes. <laughs> so um, you know, designs of them, you know, concept of them. And so that was a really great tour as well. And we added horns and. And then I would say, but my favorite, when we did the Triumph Tour in, in 81 and did Victory, but I would have to say the Triumph Tour of the Jacksons Tour was my absolute favorite because the way the stage was designed with these uh, automatic pods that, that uh, well, remote, I should say, uh, remote control pods, the lighting pods that would move like robotics and scissor arms. And, and uh, we, I was on risers most of the tours, or the second two tours I was on risers. I had a riser and they had 10K lights. I don't know what you know what those are. Super uh, movie set lights, uh, like 10,000 kilowatts, whatever it is. And um, it was underneath my riser, underneath the horns riser, underneath the keyboard player's riser, and they shoot right into the audience and their faces and blind them out. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> not that I get take pleasure in blinding the audience out, but then <laughs> send them to the eye doctor and stuff like that. I don't take pleasure. I'm not uh, like that. But uh, they would was, leave with the they would leave with the sunburn. Yes, indeed, a tan at least, you know. <laughs> so, <laughs> but they wouldn't do that whole show. It'd be on occasionally certain songs. They come on for a little bit and then they turn off. But to me, that was like the magnitude that Michael always talked about, bigger than life, and the the magnitude of having a lighting I had never seen in my life that big, and utilize them in that fashion, you know, to create the silhouettes that they wanted to have while it was on stage was extraordinary to me with a, a person of a production mind and designer's mind. And our risers moved front and forward and backwards and those those robotic, three separate robotic uh, pods and scissor arms with lights all over them, they would work like three independent robots, you know, moving up and down in a, in the panels, the, the pod panels would tilt in different directions independently. It was, it was something like out of Transformers, uh, something out of Spielberg movie, you know, or um, you know, one of those kind of movies. You know, um, it, it was just incredible production, advance in production over the other two tours. Victory was the tour of magnitude. It was phenomenal stage. You know, I can't remember the dimensions: two hundred forty feet by something else, ninety feet deep, two hundred forty feet across, something like that. We had eighty something trucks. It was the magnitude was phenomenal. 
you know, we had that's the first time we started doing stadiums. It, uh, in all those stadiums and the magnitude of that would be what it is. You know, costumes were amazing too. And once again, uh, the show was was it was amazing as well. But I think I think on that tour for me. Uh, the songs were a little bit too fast. You know, that's the way they wanted the brothers wanted them, but I always thought they was a little bit too fast. So I like the tempo and the pace of the, the songs that we did in the, the first three tours, you know. They were more relaxed and comfortable. Uh, the only thing about the, the Victory Tour was the tempos and the pace of the songs were a little bit fast for me. You know, and even in, even in the Triumph Tours, it got a bit fast. And, you know, in that live album, you know, I thought they were too fast. And I used to mention it, but they said that's how they wanted it. And so, but out of the, the Destiny and... Uh, off the wall uh, destiny tours were more sensible tempos, but I like I like victory because of uh, the magnitude. It was on a scale that hadn't been done before, and the audience that we played to, you know, we sold out six nights at Dodger Stadiums in a few hours, and we did six full sellouts in Dodger Stadium, which was unheard was unheard of at the time, and it was it was a great tour, a great tour. We I just wished it had gone over Europe like they intended, but yeah. so big. They say they couldn't make money. To ship it over, they would cost exorbitant amounts of money, and they couldn't make money on it because uh, the venues in, in Europe is, aren't as big as the ones here. And to fit that down, they would have to scale it down, and they, they didn't want to um, to um, compromise the production value of the show. So we wound up not going to Europe with it. So, But of my of the tours that I did with the brothers, I'd say, I'd say Triumph was in. That's great, and that's that was a question from uh, one of our followers on Twitter at Nigel Williams Seven. He really wanted to know the answer to that, so thank you, Jonathan. And when we when we spoke to Tito Jackson uh, just a couple of weeks ago, he that was actually a thing he said as well. He was he, as as a you know one of the Jackson brothers. He was extremely proud of that Dodgers Stadium achievement of selling that out so many times for the Victory Tour, even so many years later. Yeah, it's pretty pretty incredible. Even to this day, when you think about it, Dodger Stadium is a humongous stadium. And to sell out yeah. uh, six nights there. And it, I, as I remember, the tickets sold out so fast. It was unbelievable. It set a record uh, and the tickets selling out. You know, I was very, very proud of that of that show. You know, um, but I just, for some reason, and it was a the magnitude of lighting, sound, and everything was like off the Richter scale and off the chain on uh, as far as the magnitude of it. But I just, I, I'm akin to the, the lighting design of the night of the eighty one tour, I just liked it so much. Maybe because I like Transformers movies and all that stuff and and uh, sci fi stuff. It was like sci fi stage to me. And uh, Victory had some of that too, but for some reason I just liked the concepts of, that they had on the Triumph tour with uh, being a smaller stage but having that kind of dynamics of of uh, yeah. I mean, I, I love Triumph too. That's probably I would say my favorite yeah um, tour of the Jacksons as well because the sound is. Is just so organic, and all the singing is all completely live. It's just the instrumentation is incredible with the horns, and I, I absolutely love it. I think yeah. it's a it's a beautiful tour, and we were lucky enough to see some high definition footage of it actually in the recent um, Spike Lee documentary that came out. Yeah, um, I think it's called Michael Jackson's Journey from Motown to Off the Wall. I'm in that. I'm in that. I'm all over that. Yeah. So I'm, that's it. it. Was, it was that's exactly right. See, it was great for me to see that. I didn't see that high definition footage as, as well. I mean, I wanted to look at it. I mean, I was, I'm so proud of that and 
having been a part of that. And um, and I did the tour that promoted it, so they put me in. I don't, I'm not on the record. John Robinson did the record, and he's another master drummer. He's a big, big hero of mine. I admire so much, you know, and I, um, you know, I'm grateful to him. He set the templates that I had to learn and play to that made it so pleasurable and enjoyable the way he approached the music. And he, he created those, you know, beats within the studio. And, and what he did was so masterful and so artistic and so musical. It makes it fun for me to play all the time. I, I don't get tired of playing, uh, replicating what he's done. I just put my attitude, my energy, my finesse, my articulation, you know, uh, to, to, to what he's done to make it live, to bring it up to live. And, you know, the strength and attitude and the power and the dynamics. And it's all in those things to touch, you know. I try to play it that it feels like him, but I put nuances of myself and it, uh, it makes it, makes it uh, personal to me. But uh, he's done well, a lot of Michael's recording work and um, the stuff that he's played on has been really, really fun to play and, and great to play because it's so musical. He's such a music. He's a musician. He's not, not exactly just a drummer. He's a musician. He writes music on drums. That's what I do. I attempt to do. I, I strive to do. I'm not. I'm not a drummer. I'm a musician, and I write music on drums when I play music. I'm writing songs. I'm playing songs on the drums alone, and um, I can play a song with no other instrumentation. I make the drums sound like a song. And that's what I strove to do since a young kid. I want to be musical, not just a timekeeper, and um, not, not just for dynamics and accents and stuff like that. I wanted to play musically, and I wanted to move people's spirits and make them not able to control their bodies. They have to move. They got to dance. And it's a power in that. You know, there's a, there's a magic power in that, the touch without touching. You know, when I play my drums, you can be in the back of the stadium, and I guarantee you, I promise you, let me play my drums. And you will move. Your neck's going to move. Your foot's going to tap. Something in your body, your body's going to wiggle. You're going to start dancing. And just give me the opportunity and I can make you dance because that's the, the power and spirit God gave me uh, to do. And musicians are that, you know, we have power over the, over the souls of many uh, who come into, uh, into the distance of our work. And that's how. Yeah, and not just uh, not just in uh, stadiums either. I mean, I remember sitting in a in a movie cinema um, after This Is It came out. Yeah, and uh, I remember just hearing those initial beats of jam and want to be starting something, and people around us everywhere were moving. Yeah, and <laughs> yeah, that's my absolutely. Yeah, it's it's amazing thing. It's it's like magic. It's like um, it's wonderment. You know that I can reach inside you. Everything John Robinson can do, and many other drummers can do, and musicians, but mostly drummers can reach inside you and turn the switch on and you and make you move like a puppet <laughs> and groove, you know, uh, like a, like a dance puppet. So, I mean, I take it as a gift and as a blessing to have that. It's a power. I always say it's a, it's a power that we have, especially as drummers, as I mentioned, something with rhythm, which is the original language for mankind from the very beginning was re- drum people beating drums across in Africa. They sent a message, you know, the original language, you know, it's something about that, that connects. Primal. It's, it's something primal. very primal, and it goes yeah. across every culture, every continent right. from the earliest civilization. It's such a primal thing, and it's carried through right through to now. Yeah, drums is the, is, drums is the, uh, the global language, you know, drums and yes. rhythms. Music is as well, but it's, it stems from, from drums, the rhythm of drums. Is the uh, un, like to say uh, Tower Babel scrambled the language, but for some reason drums rhythms aren't weren't touched. You know, drums and the beat, the beat of a drum, we can reach every language, every culture, every nationality, every religion. We 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 can reach the souls of them that bypass all the other particular differences that divide us. 
You know, you play a rhythm and it unites people all over the world. You play drum reads. If I can get my drums and play, and, and everybody understands it all across the world, would understand it, appreciate it, and feel it. And that's a power. And I can say it is a blessing God gave me and all the other drummers that I love and respect out there. You know, um, and I don't feel I have no competition and that I don't look at drummers, other drummers as competition. I look at it as brotherhoods and it's just people, we, we, that's, we people of language. So, and, um, and, and pleasure and we bring people pleasure to dance, you know, and we're, we're just people like that, that we're uniters, you know, no matter where you're from and what you do in life and, and um, all the, the dividing aspects of mankind, we bring you right back together. You get us in a club. We get you in a club or an arena or a stadium, and we bring everybody back together. I think it's a blessing to have that kind of power, and I, I don't take it for granted. It's fun. It's, it's, it's the pleasure of my life, you know, uh, except for my fiancé. She's a pleasure <laughs> of my life, too. <laughs> Jonathan, another great thing you do um... – is is your social media presence and we love your account on Twitter. It's at J Moffat MJM. And you put out some great material on that, some video footage, all kind of things. And I remember about uh, I was a few months ago when you when you were tweeting about the Grammy performance, the nineteen eighty eight Grammys. It was the first time that I actually learned that you were drumming there, but um sort of backstage you were watching a video screen watching Michael perform. Can you tell us about that experience and how that show came together and what you thought of it? Do I have to? It's <laughs> for that, but not my favorite memory. <laughs> I mean, it's a great memory, but when you hear the story, you're gonna bust up laughing and going to see why it's not my favorite memory. <laughs> sometimes, choose well, you can't not, not tell it now. <laughs> I sometimes choose not to tell it because it's not the most uh, proud thing I can um, I can talk about and, and let people know. Okay, God dog, it you gonna push me into this? Why you have to bring that question? <laughs> <laughs> I was all to do the Grammys with Michael, and I was all excited. I'm gonna be on the Grammys with Michael. I never did the Grammys before, right? Fantastic! So I get there and I meet with Michael. And we talk about things and stuff. And we're gonna do Man in the Mirror and uh, stuff like that. So uh, I was at, at the time I was with Yamaha Drums, and so I contacted the, they contacted the uh, Cardish people. They had got this. I told them all the sizes. I had this humongous Yamaha kit. And I'm thinking I'm going to be on stage at first. I said, oh, this is going to be awesome. It's going to look cool. And I'm going to set up nice. And I have all my symbols. I got all these symbols. At the time, I was using 10 or 12. And I said, oh, I set all this stuff. But then they said, no, you're not setting up on stage. And I said, huh? They said, you set up behind the curtain backstage. I said, they're not going to see my drums. <laughs> so they said, no. <laughs> they said, no, you're behind the curtains. And we're going to have a monitor for you to watch Michael. So you can do the performance with him. I said, oh, man. All right. All right. So. And the, there's several artists, much other top artists on the Grammys, and of course, and they're musicians and all the top musicians. And they were like, oh, Sugar for Serial, man, it's going to be off the chain. It's going to be amazing, man. Forget the Sugar for, for close up for him and backstage, too. We could be right up on him and all these musicians around top people and uh, and artists and stuff. And and I was set up my drum. They saw my cold blooded drum set set up and I'm setting it up like proud. I think I'm going to be playing and everything. Then all of a sudden, right before we get to play, they, they called me for Mike, meet with Michael. They told me, well, you're not going to really be playing. <laughs> um, you're going to hit the accents with Michael. Oh. So, so what happened was they start playing a song and then I start, and I was like, oh my God. Oh my God, I got all these musicians and artists here waiting to see me play, and I'm not gonna be playing. <laughs> they still have the tracks. So I'm like, oh my God. And I said, thinking, this is kind of funny. I said, oh, what I'm gonna do, what I'm gonna do. I was panicking. What am I gonna do? Oh my God, they're gonna see me just sit there all that time. I said, oh, I gotta, I gotta do something. And I looked at my big old drum set. And I said, oh 
I'm look terrible with all this stuff here. And I said, mm, I know I, I, I got to get rid of some stuff. And I told the tech, I said, you know that symbol over there? Those symbols, you could take those two down. I'm probably not going to hit those. And they say, okay. <laughs> I said, and you know what else too? Those two drum times like that? I probably don't really need those. You know, I could use them on another show. Uh, but, you know, you can strike those two. That's okay. I, I just, you know, I don't need all that stuff. And then so little by little, I went to the to set down to like half of what it was. And doing that kind of stuff. And they were, people were like, looking, what, what's going on? They're taking the set down. He's supposed to be playing. All the people folding their arms and looking. What's going on? And I got it down to like five symbols, <laughs> 10, uh, 12. And I got the, the time down to, to like four or five. And, um, this, and I said, yeah, I said, well, that's fine. It was like still too much, but I couldn't keep going. It would make me look worse. So <laughs> so I, I got it down. I said, this is still going to be embarrassing. Cause, so, so what happened was this, they started, Michael came on and started the thing, man. It was, it's so hard to even like, tell this story. And and all the people say, oh, they, they, you know, they shuffle in place like, oh, it's about to be on. It's gonna, this is going to be off the chain. Sugarfoot for gonna be killing it back here, and so I'm sitting there. I wanted to have a cloak over my head, and I wanted to hide in the closet. And I sat to sit there. The song stopped playing. I'm sitting on my seat, not doing nothing. They hear the drums, they hear the music going, and they said they're looking at each other like, "What's going on here?" And I had to sit there and eat crow or whatever you want to call it, and be humiliated and sit on the drums. And the drums are just heads are clean, not a strike on them. <laughs> Or anything, <laughs> and they all sit at the left there, and I'm just sitting on the seat, looking around. I'm, I'm closing my eyes because I'm looking at the screen. I'm looking at the curtain where they couldn't see my eyes exactly. I'm like, close my eyes and say, "Oh Lord, why did you put me through this? Why this is happening? You know, why did it have to be like this?" And they right, I couldn't hide anywhere. I was right there, and they right around me. And I'm like, this is the most humiliating thing in my life. So the whole time going back or going by, and they they just waiting for me. When you gonna play? What are you gonna play? And it gets to the part, the end of the vamp where Michael runs. If you watch that video of Michael Mann in the Mirror on 1988 Grammys, he started getting excited. And he's jumping up and he starts running around. And then he's shaking his hand real fast and he spins around. And when he spins around, I go, and when he hits, jumps, drops down his knees, I go, pop. And that was all I did. Oh, he did that twice. Oh, wow. <laughs> So he got back up and he started doing it again. He did it again. I, and that was my whole performance. And all these people looking around and I could just hear him laughing. <laughs> it was like so humiliating, so embarrassing. But when you take a job, you do what the job entails. And that's what it was. And I had to ride through that uh, humiliating time and, and experience. But at least I could say I was on the Grammys with Michael. <laughs> you were on the Grammys. Yeah, and you were. <laughs> we, can un- we can understand now that you've told it's the story. Funny that I tell it. It's funny. Like, it's what I had to say. No, I'm not gonna need that time. You know what? Um, that's a bit too much stuff. You know, I don't need all that stuff. Yeah. <laughs> that symbol over there. You know, I don't. I don't like the sound of that one. Just take that one away. I whittle that set down <laughs> in a few minutes after setting all that stuff up. It was so embarrassing, man. But I lived through it, and here I'm. I'm survived, and you know, I'm a survivor. And I'm talking to you guys now, telling this this uh, lame story. Well, you got a story from it, and. You know, those little moments that you did play. We appreciate those, and I'm sure Michael <laughs> did too. <laughs> yeah. I know you're being kind. I know, you know. <laughs> I'm going to ask you about the history tour. Uh, I actually was very blessed to see two performances in Australia of the History World Tour in 1996, and that was the only MJ solo tour that you worked on. How did the History Tour and your work on that compare back to the Jacksons Tour and did Michael seem as enthusiastic about touring by that stage in his career? 
Yeah, that tour was steps above any of the other tours with the brothers. Uh, and you know, I, I wasn't on Bad. Because when they called me for Bad, uh, I was supposed to be musical director, actually. Then he pushed it back 10 months, and I got a call a week or two later from Madonna for Who's That Girl Tour. And that's when I contacted Michael's organization and told him. And they said, well, we pushed back eight or nine months, uh, 10 months, and so you can go out and do that. And when we're ready, we'll call you. So I accepted the Madonna tour. And then when it came up, I was still on the contract with Madonna. And Madonna has extended. I couldn't do the bad tour. That, that's why I wasn't on bad. I was supposed to be there and I was supposed to be music director. So unfortunately, um, I couldn't get out of that contract with Madonna. So, you know, it was impossible to do. So that's when Ricky uh, stepped in at that point and did that tour. And um, while I'm doing a bad tour, and it's and dangerous, I happened to be with his sister, Janet. And Walton. <laughs> I was with his sister and he's trying to pull me. And Janet said, no, foot, he can't get you. I got you. <laughs> so he wouldn't, let me, he wouldn't <laughs> let me go. So I missed dangerous tour. And so, and that's when he called me um, for the history tour. I was with the Isley Brothers at the time, just was finishing up their rehearsals with them to get ready to go out this, on tour with them the next week. And then I got a call from Brad Buxer, the music director for the for the, uh, Michael, and um, and he said uh, Michael wants you. He wants you really bad. He wants you to come back to him. I said, well, I'm with the Dyson brothers. I said, you got to get out of it. Michael said, you don't want nobody else but you. He wants you. You got to do it. So I said, oh, my God. Well, I got to talk to the Ronald Isley, who's the leader of the Isleys, and, um, and appeal to him if he would let me out of it. But fortunately enough, they didn't do contracts, so I didn't have a contract. It was just a word-of-mouth verbal thing. And, and fortunately enough, secondly, was that he understands. He, like everybody else in the industry, know my history with the brothers. That's my family. And um, if I didn't have contracts, other things, it would have been easier to, to make a move. But, you know, I couldn't do it because I had paperwork, you know, and the legal aspects of it would have been, you know, crazy. Uh, but with this one, I, I didn't have a contract. And so um, they called me and, and I talked to the next day. I went to rehearsals and talked to Ronald and appealed to him, and explained to him. And he was so understanding. Ronald is, was really wonderful with me. I love playing with Isley's. I missed that time. I just did the rehearsals. I did a, actually I did a couple of shows with them until my replacement came in. And that he was really understanding. He said, well, Sugarfoot, you know, we love you here. We love you. We're so happy to have you here. We want you to stay. But then again, I know that's your family. You you started with them boys and that group and, and that uh, that's your family. And he said, I also know we can't afford you to pay you what you do what they pay you. <laughs> so <laughs> he said like that, had him laughing. But he was kind enough to say, we understand you know, uh, that you have to go, and that's family calls, you have to go, and I say, yeah, you know, that's my family, I love my family, and I didn't need me, uh, me you know, me and Michael, and um, and so he said, um, well, I don't know who you're going to get, and I said, well, Rayford Griffin used to do a with, tour with you uh, last before I came in, well, can you can call him back, he knows your show already, you just have to add the new things, and he said, yeah, yeah, that's what we should do, so they wound up calling Rayford, and I wound up switching out, going with uh, the back with, back with Michael to ship my stuff from their rehearsals, I mean, for the, for the second gig I did with them and um, and shipped Rayford stuff in. And he just took over because he knew this stuff. He'd been with them for years. He's a, one of another one of my hero drummers, an extraordinary drummer. I mean, truly a remarkable drummer uh, that I admire greatly and a great friend now. I love Rayford. And he's uh, since his John Lupani days, I've been a, been a big fan of his and trying trying to study him and. And uh, so it was. It was just he went to to the Isleys and uh, took over that seat because he knew it already. And I went to Michael because I knew Michael stuff, most of Michael stuff. And and I got back with Michael um, in '96 for that tour. '96, '97, we did that tour. It was, I'd say, I'd say, the best tour I've done. I've done of all the tours that I've done. It was the best tour. That one and Blind Ambition were the two best tours. And in different ways, they were best. You know, 
um, from each other. My ambition was was fantastic because the magnitude of that staging was truly magnificent. They had 13 hydraulic lifts on the stage, you know, columns that come out of nowhere. I mean, just the whole stage was, was robotic and animated. And um, and the, the tour itself, I played on uh, a number of Michael, Madonna's records, and you know, I got to play. The, I had to got a chance to play my own work. Or a change, you know, as well as other works that I, people I admired who played on that stuff or was programmed. She has a multitude of fantastic songs, hit songs. I love Madonna and I love her work in music too. That was just great opportunity for me, and, I, and that was my favorite tour of hers, Blind Ambition, a magnificent tour. So, those two tours are my favorites of all things. But but history tour because Michael's at his peak. And his songs were, you know, you know, many albums that come out bad had come out, you know, Thriller, thriller of course. And since I last worked with him, then Bad and and um, I did the, the Victory Tour with Thriller, but since the Bad Tour came, uh, album came out, the Dangerous album came out, and then of course, like the History Channel album had just been dropped, and um, it was at this peak of things, you know, his magnitude. And that was the most incredible tour with him because he was on, he was magnificent, man. Every time I thought I saw everything he can do, he he had me electrified and I'm back there on the drum screaming like I'm in the audience of fan or something I guess. <laughs> and yeah, yeah, yeah. I was going crazy back there watching him do some mind boggling, you know, unrealistic things and the spins, long, long spins and different other things, body movements and things that I'd never seen him do before. So I was still watching him grow as a, a performer and artist and so and I'd been away from him so long that, you know, it was fresh and new to me again. So it was my best tour, I would say, you know, uh, and that one in Blind Ambition. It was almost like what and what I think. I think history was because I love Michael and his music was uh, a bit ahead of uh, Blind Ambition. They were close, but they, I think history was my favorite, absolute favorite tour I've done in my career. I've done 25 tours in my career. You, you spoke you spoke a little earlier about the magic of being able to drum and control people's body movements with your work. Yes. And it just sort of dawned on me right then how amazing it would have been to sit at the back of the stage, drumming, controlling Michael Jackson's body movements. Yeah. You know what I mean? Or, or at least inspiring his body movements through your work. That would have been, that, that feeling must be indescribable. Yeah, surrealist, surrealistic, you know, and I I stand back there and I, I look, and now I don't think, I'm in the midst of my, first of all, when I'm touring, I'm playing, I'm in the midst of my work. I'm there to work. And my mind is from down first downbeat on first darkness of the curtain. I'm in the phase of the show mentally, emotionally, spiritually. Uh, I don't analyze things. Oh, this is a great opportunity. I'm going to you know throw lucky. Or I look, I'm drawing for Michael, and I don't think like that. I'm saying, all right, I got to make this show better, better than that last show. I got to do more magnificence. I got to have more power. I have to play more finesse, more articulation, be more precision and precise with my hits. My accents got to be spot on like a computer. My timing got to be like a computer. I'm feeling and thinking all of those things. You know, you got to be focused, Jonathan, 100% focused. Michael's counting on you. And that's what the midst of my work more than uh, moments of appreciation or or um, thrills over, you know, what I've, um, I'm there and I'm in front of behind Michael and stuff like that. I'm looking at him like I'm, I'm watching him like with eagle eye for responses to his dance moves, or, you know, and uh, that's what I'm mainly there to make him feel it and, and hit responses to his spontaneous movements that he may do something in a theatrical way and just stop. And I, I got to be prepared and, and got to be midi to him. I got to be sempty to him, if you know what that means, um, uh, and and respond as if I'm Foley and I'm a Foley artist and, and it's doing a soundtrack for a film. 
and something visual is happening, I got to add the foley to it. You know, that's why I look at it and I approach my work with Michael and all the artists. You know, when I do accents and stuff like that, I'm always on cue, always on point. My my focus and concentration is astute, and um, it's, it's like I can feel it. It's beyond the spiritual being. <clears throat> I'm so attuned to the moment and the time and the second I'm in. From second to second to minute to minute to moment to moment, I'm, I'm in that moment. And I can't allow my mind to drift because something will can and will happen and you miss something, you know. And um, then your reputation is not what it's supposed to be and what it was or what it should be uh, as far as being reliable. So those things are utmost uh, important for me. You know, I take my work seriously. My, very fortunately, very fortunately for me, I'm sure other, many other musicians feel the same way. My work is my play because I don't work drums. I play drums. <laughs> I play music. Yeah. I don't work music. I play music. You can say I work music in a way from, from income, but I basically, I, I go on stage to play music, not work music. So I'm fortunate that my work is my play, is my pleasure. So I'm blessed in that respect. But I take it as serious, you know, and I play on with that play on words, I do take take it very, very serious. I'm extremely serious. And I treat it as if I'm the artist. I, that's how important it is to me is if I'm Michael, I'm the artist. And I want it meticulously done. I want it to perfectly to my standards. I treat it as if it's my show. Not that it's my show. I know they're here to see, but I put the, as much uh, the focus of input into it as if I, as, is, I'm the utmost important thing up there. And it's for me, you know, my reputation. I'm the artist out front. I approach my my supportive role as if I'm the artist, you know. And I know I'm not. But I, in other words, I have that kind of concentration and focus and, and will to do it right and do it the best and do it impressive to move the audience, to shock the audience, to, to uh, you know, to uh, enliven the audience, uh, to blow their minds. I'm, I'm there to do that. And even though they, they're looking at Michael mostly, I'm doing my part to contribute to that excitement for him. And it means the world to me. It means everything to me at that moment, whatever tour I'm on, whoever's tour I'm on, means everything. It's the existence of my life at that moment in time or that period of time. If it's two hours, that's my existence in life. And I put that much importance in it. And, um, and that's what I feel about it. And that's how I approach it. And so, you know, I love working with Michael. I miss, miss it so much. And, you know, I miss him so much. And, um, He's incomparable. Yeah, I don't think they'll ever be anybody like him. They can't. I can't see it. I'll be surprised. I love you. I love you too.
Hi, this is Michael Prince, studio engineer and producer with Michael Jackson, and you're listening to the MJ Cast. So the history tour happened, and a few years later, you would have got the call to work on uh, some two special shows that happened at Madison Square Garden in New York, the 30th anniversary concert. And it was the first time that Michael really, I think, did a show with a full orchestra. Yeah. Uh, what, tell, tell us what it was like working in that kind of scenario. Oh, that was, other than the history too, that was the most fun in my life, my career. I say it wasn't like a big concert at the stadium and the production value he had there, but it was incredible, the production value, but the fact that uh, the magnitude of stars that was there that turned out to support Michael and celebrate Michael and uh, and be there for Michael, it was just mind-boggling. It was a who's who of Hollywood, and it was a who's who of fanship, and uh, the enthusiasm was just off the Richter scale in that building. It was so, so electrifying. And you got to remember, the brothers hadn't been together in so many years. I mean, a tremendous amount of years. Mm. So for them, and it was a reunion of them, that made it so special. You know, for me as well, because I'd always been hoping that the brothers get back, Michael get back with the brothers and do something, and together a tour or something, a new record tour. I always wanted to see that. You know, I know Michael has reasons for doing this whole thing because he had the calling to be to be who he became. You know, um, and you can't stop the calling. But at the same time, I love family and I missed uh, my family, uh, him with the brothers. So it was a great time for me to, to have the first reunion of him and the brothers in so long of time, way overdue. And I loved it. I relished it and I loved it, seeing them, get, them all together and, um, and um, putting the pieces back together and doing that show. Um, but the, the talent that was there to celebrate Michael and the talent that was there to participate was just it's incredible, you know. And I got to play behind Michael. I got to play with some other things, too. But uh, but when Michael's segment started, the whole world stopped. It seemed like the whole world stopped. You know, it stopped the globe stopped spinning. It was just electrifying in that room. And it was magnificent. I said, oh, man, it's on now. You know, we had rehearsed it. We knew what we were doing. So we, I knew it was going to be great. You know, um, barring anything, you know, catastrophic happening, stage collapsing, something crazy happening. You know, I knew it was going to be great because the show they had put together was just, just amazing. And even outside of the part I did with Michael, the show they put together with Quincy and, and other people, the conductors, you know, that, that conducted orchestra with parts was amazing. Um, the songs and that they did with the other artists was amazing. It's just it was a, a very positive night, two nights. They filmed on the 7th and then on the 10th. And it was a very positive and and uh, rewarding night of spirit to celebrate somebody had done so much in his life and with his life and so much for uh, many other people around the world out of love and caring and and um, contribution, you know, unselfishly. So I think it was a perfect night, you know, perfect times, two nights and perfect event that uh, it always should have been, you know. And um, I'm glad they got to do that, you know. Um, and he got to experience that before the, the unthinkable happened. He got to experience that, how much he was loved and how much he's appreciated on that show. Yeah. And that, um, that, that, those concerts, you know, and, um, and I see mother smiling so much. She was so proud. I never forget that. She was mm. so proud of not, not only Michael, but all the brothers and that they were back together. That meant a lot to me because I love, love, love mother. She's like my second mother. And, um, I mean, really been wonderful to me. I never forget her. Um, I always appreciate and love her. Um, but to watch her smile, I remember looking at her and watching her smile. I go oh, periodically look over and try to see her smiling and um, feel her pride and 
you know, and I felt I felt proud to be with our sons and, and be with the, the family and considered like family, like a brother. Um, I feel, felt proud to be a part of that, you know. So for many ways, in many ways, it was it was great for me and exciting for me and uh, rewarding for me. But the, mainly the, the magnitude of the energy in the room and all of these stars that came out to, to celebrate Michael. And, and, you know, and to finally, after 97, to be back with Michael and do that show. It was just it's just incredible mark in my life and and um, badge to wear that, that I was on the 30th anniversary special with Michael. You know, it was a tremendous tribute to him, and I'm, I'm so happy to have that on my resume. The energy of that show reverberated completely around the globe. I know that a lot of fans of Michael became fans from seeing that performance on TV. Even Jamin, that was the moment he became a mega fan, and then a few years after that fans new fans were born with the this is it project what were the rehearsal sessions like for this is it before michael became involved like learning all of the the sort of the the later <clears throat> songs and things like that because these are such milestone events that they created new fans right from these moments yeah, it was mainly about pulling the show together, everybody doing their job, much like the other ones, you know, learning the songs as far as the music- musicians are concerned. Now that the band got put together a little bit late, later than I got called on the 15th of uh, April, and I went in there on the 16th with my drums and everything set up. But we didn't have all the band members just as yet. They had to audition some people between for the next two weeks or so. We didn't really have the full band until like the first week, I think it was, of May. So we, we what you heard on that movie was not a lot of time. Usually we take two to three months to rehearse, you know, and sometimes three and a half months to rehearse uh, the, the tours, you know, two months with the band, then uh, two to three weeks with the lighting and staging, you know, it's kind of normal. But uh, we, we pulled that, which was heard in that film was pulled together, say, from the first or second week of May through the unthinkable, you know, you know, which is the 24th. Of, uh, 24th of June. So that's not a hell of a lot of time. We had a lot of songs to learn. Everybody was focused and, uh, and pulling all these elements together and doing their parts and you know, and contributing what was expected of them. And it shows professionalism all, uh, all across the board from the, the lighting, the staging, the sound, the, the, the you know, stage crews, um, the, the, the department heads and leaders, and the sound uh, engineers on both monitors and sound, uh, the film crew, and then the band, of course, the wardrobe and the band itself, and, then, and of course, the dancers and Michael and, and Kenny Ortega. It's, you know, to pull that. It was seen was only part of it. And what I know, from what I know and have been told and during the last week of rehearsal, um, that there was the next week was uh, some things that none of us had seen before that was supposed to be introduced uh, production-wise, a magic act or a trick or something they paid a ton of money for uh, to produce over a million dollars to produce it. And we were supposed to be introduced to it that next week because they kept it secret all that time. And I kept begging, come on, man, come on. I've been with Michael a long time. Show me. You can tell me. I'm not going to tell nobody. Tell me. I was trying to psych the production. <laughs> and they said, laugh, laugh. And Paul Gonga, whatever, laugh, laugh. He said, no, sugar for no for you. You got to wait, sugar for you. got to wait the next for next week. Just like the rest of them. I said, oh, man. I was like a little boy. Oh, man. Come on. I'm not going to tell nobody. I promise you. And, um, I said, no, no, you got to wait for next week. He said, but it's going to blow your mind. <laughs> you know, this magic trick is amazing. I think Copperfield did it. Somebody did. I forgot who did it. One of the biggest 
a magician. And uh, there was a bunch of other things that hadn't been seen with the, the outside. It was supposedly, I was told, elements of production that was going to start as soon as you pull into the, in the park parking lot. And people are in costumes and all kinds of things. And people are along, the ushers are in costume. It was supposed to be a big, big uh uh, difference from your normal concert, so to speak. So what you see in the film is what I'm saying to culminate things is that you see about 75% of what was meant to be. But 75 to 80% that you're seeing and the other 20 to 25% nobody got to see an experience, you know, of that show that was intended to be. So it was, the film is great and you get to see how things come together and, and it was going to be amazing, the music and, and uh, we were still working on the music at that time too, so it wasn't completely done. The actual finished product was, was going to be even greater than what was introduced in the film. So just... Yeah, well I, I think musically it's it's one of my favorite sounding Michael Jackson tours. The sound is incredible. The the actual, the production of the music is, I think Michael Bearden really put together something amazing. And uh, was that was that the first time you'd worked with a percussionist as well? I think Bashiri Johnson was working with you on a lot of the rhythms as well, wasn't he? He's a very, very good friend of mine. He's a beautiful spirit, incredible, incredible player. Yeah, and that was the first time Michael used a percussion. I've worked with Louis yeah. Theo Madonna and, and other percussionists and Gerandi, of course, on Victory and, um, and um, Triumph and and stuff and then all what's the what's the difference can you explain to our audience like what is the difference between a drummer and a percussionist well a drummer the drummer plays a whole, whole trap kit you know percussionists they play the rhythm, rhythmic things with inside the rhythms that the drummers are playing as and then complementary to that and of course it's they can be nowadays it's, it's evolved into hand and foot instruments but back in the day it was just hand and instrument instruments you know but um it's amazing what the percussionists are doing now i'm very excited about what they're doing and happy i love it you know they're doing all kind of things you know with the foot um you know all kind of step-ons and <laughs> control agents and 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 um and um cajones all kind of things going on uh, remote cajones and all kind of things going on with that's really exciting but the difference is that you know drum, drums are uh the, the, the four elements of the kit and uh, all the different uh, tiers you know got the upper tiers the cymbals and that's a, it's, it's upper frequency of register of sound you know brightest sound and they got the toms with the mid, mid registers of sounds that you manipulate with melodic fills and uh, or, or intricate fills and then you got the kick drum is the lower the bottom end the snare drum is the snare drum is in a mid-range frequency with the crack and the mid-range tones. And then you got the, the lower foundation. It's a, it's a bass drum, so you got three tiers uh, of, of elements of sound that are all manipulated individually, rhythmically, that come together to make the complete rhythm. You know, percussionists mm. now they like I said, they're doing a lot of things. You know, some of them even incorporate bass drums and stuff. But as far as traditionally, they they are hand instruments, playing the congas, the bongos, the claves, the tambourines, the shakers, and all the triangles, all the elements, claves, um, all the elements of hand uh, instruments. But it's evolved into something greater, which is magnificent to me. You know, and but uh, not, uh, traditionally, percussionists complemented the drum rhythms, you know, on, and color, colored them and made it musical even more so by um, adding in to what the drum rhythm is doing and making it one complete uh, cycle of rhythm. You know, so we were very important to each other. Michael had never used a percussionist before. <clears throat> and as I understand, Michael Bearden and um, 
and decided to bring him in. I'm glad and Bashir is my buddy. I love Bashir. We we have always had a wonderful relationship, and I respect him. He's an amazing, amazing percussionist. He's worked with uh, Whitney Houston. I mean, just tremendous number list of of people. The who's who of, of artists, and um, I was glad that um, Michael decided to be open and hard enough to allow a percussionist. Before he never wanted a percussionist in in his live shows, and um, it is a te- that's a testament to Bashiri and his work, his playing and his work and his spirit. Michael felt comfortable with him and liked him, but he also felt good with his performances enough to let him stay and want him, even though he never did take one before. He decided to bend his rule because Bashiri uh, was was an additive to his show and uh, and to the spirit of the people that surrounds him, you know, meaning the personality that uh, Bashiri has fits into Michael's spirit and our spirits and and he felt comfortable with him and said, you know, I don't usually do this, but I'm going to allow um, Mashiri, something about Mashiri he liked, I know. And he felt, and uh, Mashiri more than handled it. And I was so glad that he was there. I, I wanted him to be there. So once I found out he was going to be there, I was excited. And that was a great move on, <laughs> on uh, Bearden's part. And uh, Bearden did a great job of producing the show and with Michael and, and arranging the show. I mean, a great job, you know. So it's, it's, it turned out to be... Wow, the legacy of that film, I'd have to say, stands as a testament of my career because it shows what we go through and it takes to put on not only a Michael show, but a show of that magnitude. And um, what we all individual go through and all the elements of everything. And it shows the element of how I work, my end of work, because I do a lot of sessions too, but I'm mainly known for doing live shows. And it shows the element of my work, how I work and, um, and, and how everybody else works to make it all come together so that in the end result, when people get their tickets and come to the arena and get their seats, they'll get to see what they see as as the full entertainment um, presentation. And now they get to see what goes into it to make it that. And they appreciate it more, you know, if they had seen that show after it was done. But they got to see it. And they got the one thing very important to mention is that they got to see that Michael was in charge. A lot of people thought that Michael had dic- people dictating things or doing things and arranging things and on, and he just did what they tell him. It goes to show that Michael was in charge and he knew what he wanted. He's he, He's been doing it so long, you know, since he young, from very, very young. He was seasoned when he first started, I have to say. When he first sang and opened his mouth to sing, he sang like a seasoned artist you know, a grown man singing about love and experiences like he had a woman and broke up with her and he was like five, six years old, years old. you know, what you know about that, man? But he's singing like he had really experienced it and he, he related to it, the heart, the heartbreak and the hardship of, of a breakup, you know, who's loving you blew everybody on at that time on earth's mind. How can this little boy sing with such experience of knowledge and spiritual knowledge and of, of heartbreak and heartache with that much emotion? as if he lived it, and he's only six years old, eight years old, whatever, <laughs> you know, so uh, this goes to show, this this tour, and this movie goes to show the journey of Michael, to from that point, when he, st- he had a, uh, I think he had a head start as an artist being um, a child prodigy, and being gifted beyond most people uh, that ever lived as artists, you know, he was gifted um, when he was born, basically, to sing that, that season that young he's uh he was special anointed you know i always tell people everybody of of us that everybody on earth is gifted they just got 
to learn what the gift is and, and spend time nurturing it. And most people don't get to find out what the gift is because they don't spend enough time to study themselves inwardly and, and learn and find out what makes them happy and what, what their true gift is. So they never find it, so they figure they're not good at anything. But that's a mistake. And so um, I always say that everybody's gifted, but I say the truly gifted ones like the artists and fortunate people like myself, musicians who play, what we're artists too. I think that God lays his hands on all of us. And the really gifted ones like Aretha Franklin, Stevie Wonder, Michael Jackson, and other artists that are thrown through, and Prince, and Madonna, and all other ones that have something that lifted up to the stature where they were. But there's certain when they, God leaves his hands on them a little bit more than most average person. It shows what the accomplishments and their gifts. But with Michael, I, I feel and I tell people that God put his hand on Michael's spirit and on him when he was a baby or in the womb or wherever it happened. And he left, forgot it there. He left it there longer than most people because he, it anointed Michael with traits and attributes that, that other people, even the seasoned artists, don't have and don't do. That's why Michael lifted up and became who he is and what he is and what he is to the industry and, and magnificent and somebody to see, somebody to hear. As an artist, you know, he's like the, the guidepost and the, the light, lighthouse of, of the industry. Everybody waited for him to drop a new record to see what the new sound was going to be, see what the new song arrangement is going to be, to hear his inflections of his voice and his tremendous vocal talent and, uh, and wait for his, view, his videos to come out to set a new precedence for music videos. Uh, everybody was waiting in the industry every time. Every year, a year or two, he put an album out. The anticipation was growing, and I waited for his next. I can't wait till Michael's next new album come out because he set the trend and the precedence for the industry to follow. You know, So I think God left his hand on Michael longer, and it shows through the depth of his talents from beyond the years that he was when he first started contributing to music and entertainment when he was a, just the slightest of little boys and um, how he moved the world then and shocked the world with his abilities. You know, first shocking mother and then mother <laughs> turning Joseph on it, then shocking Joseph. And then, um, and then, then with the brothers, you know, what he did with his brothers, you know, I think he's, he's, he was a special human being. On that thread, the, the being, this being touched and, and Michael's sort of essence Michael was really focused on getting his message of love, peace, humanitarianism, and looking after the planet out there through the This Is It project. Was this true of your interactions with him? <clears throat> yes, absolutely. It was always, um, now he's been working, he worked on the show and his focus is on the show being the biggest and the greatest thing. Like he always said, his motto was make it bigger than life. It's got, everything's got to be bigger than life. You got to you have to leave them walking away with something that they'll remember for the next ten years or maybe all their life. Your show, so make it bigger than life. And I think that that was his uh, main focus is getting the show together to impress that much and to blow people's minds and be the greatest thing that show that ever happened. But underlying uh, behind the scenes and all of that, and 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 under underneath all of that was his intention to be able to further move the world and, and um, affect the world through his philanthropy and his caring and the things he had planned on um, with the money as well as his visits to the hospital and continue like he did before and uh, to be present present in people's lives, to, to touch and affect their lives. You know, those with little hope or no hope or, or um, the needs, needs uh, caring uh, for and, um, and those with uh, challenged uh, physical uh, ability, challenged physical states, 
and um, the, the the starvation in Africa. I mean, Michael, all of those things was in his spirit to be able to step in and do something about it. He's just one man, but one man could do something, and he showed and proved that one man could do a lot. You know, um, you know. So people say, "I'm just one man. What can I do?" You can do a lot. He showed that. He proved that. So, and and the magnitude of who he was and what he could do, he showed and proved that. And I think that this tour was going to be an extension of that, a continuation of that. But even on a grander scale, he had plans for a lot of things and uh, that he wanted to do to continue to wake the, the people up. That we need to do more for people that can't do more for themselves. We need to do more for the earth and the planet and be aware of what we're doing to it. And, you know, it's our only home and he cares about ecology. He cared about every little thing. I remember in the concert in Germany on that live video um, that we did. But there was one point, one of the German shows where he was on stage and talking right before, I think, the J5 medley. One of the songs, I'm not sure if that's the one, but, you know, he's talking and walking back and forth and he looked, happened to look down. Thank God he did. And he said, oh, a bug. It's a bug on the stage. And it's right at his feet. Yeah. And he said, well, that was like, in almost, the Munich show. Yeah. yeah, I almost stepped on it. So he he said, security, come get this bus. <laughs> the security guy, Wayne Hagen, uh, our security guy, had to come out there and pinch the bug, pick him up, and carry him off to the stage. Because <laughs> Michael cared about that life. And now most people, they wouldn't even either see it or just don't care about it. Just continue the show. If they stepped on it, stepped on it, whatever. Michael stopped that show, that multi-million dollar show, to save that bug's life. So I guess you can say he was a superhero in a way. <laughs> <laughs> That's how we think of him. He didn't have a cape on. That's all. He forgot his cape in the dressing room. Something. <laughs> his leotard. You know, he had to, and didn't have time to go change it to this. There was no phone booth around, so he could change. So, but anyway, he, he, had, to, he had to save uh, that bug's life, and he did. So bravo, Michael. Bravo. <laughs> well, so not- he, he, humanitarian and I guess uh, insectarian, whatever you want to call it. Well, not every not every superhero needs a cape, as I think Michael proved. Yeah, yeah. I've got a question. This is from uh, one of our followers at MJFFC on Twitter, and uh, I had a similar question, so I kind of joined them both together. Mm-hmm. Michael, having worked with so many big name hip hop producers that have a lot of very interesting sort of complex beats on records, what was the process of trying to adapt? a beat that's really like a hip-hop inspired complex beat on a song to being a live production on a drum kit how do you start adapting that and you just start like scream for example or, or something like that for me it's easy um, um new orleans music and especially new orleans drummers we're very very rhythmic. you know we our beats down there is really tribal as you're saying tribal and um and rhythmic and syncopated a lot so in my learning and training uh, through all the years playing in clubs and just the culture of it, because all the drummers say, "How do you play New Orleans music? You know, how do you learn that that special thing New Orleans music drummers got?" I say, "You have to go down there, and live amongst the culture, and then you absorb it and you become it. You can't nothing you could teach in a book or anything like that." But me having grown up in that element and being part of my instinct and my who I am, and as a play, as a drummer, is it uh, our rhythms are so complex a lot of times that it's just instinctive and natural. And um, and I listen to it, and I just copy what I hear. You know, I kind of become a canon copier or whatever copy you want to call it, brother copier. And then my mind copies what I hear, and I replicate it, and I duplicate it. And, um, and the uh, elements and amounts that is supposed to be done for whatever verse or chorus or whatever, I count the bars. I don't read, but I know how to count bars. And so basically, 
it's not difficult for me. I just figure out the rhythms happening and uh, little percolated rhythms underneath on the snare. And uh, maybe basically just mimicking what I hear. You know, it becomes more complicated when you try to get too scientific about it and you confuse yourself and then you have trouble getting it and learning it. But basically what we do is we just listen to something, we copy it and make it simple. And I just copy it to the best of my ability. And it's natural for me, like I said, because New Orleans rhythms are complicated like that. And a lot of the hip hop rhythms and hip hop artists and, and songs have rhythms in it exactly like or very, very similar to or um or most like New Orleans type rhythms. So I've been doing that all my life. You know, a lot of people haven't got me to yeah. me play that because I you know, on Billie Jean I can't play that. It's very simple to and for you know Madonna music I can't play the, the that stuff except for keep it together. Uh Madonna song Keep It Together I got to play a little more here. I played on that record, that album, that record. And uh like I say Prince played on that too. But uh, I I got to demonstrate some of the the, the funky Syncopated hip hop things I kind of do that feel and that style and that bass drum um, uh, arithmetic thing that I do and it's kind of syncopated and hip hop kind of style. But that's been in my blood since I was young, you know, since I was nine to ten. So when hip hop came out and rap and all that stuff came out and um, and New Jack Swing and all that, I was doing that was a little boy. That stuff was easy for me. So when they program all that stuff, it's it's pretty easy for me because it's part of my nature and nuance of who I am and my character, spiritual character from my culture down in New Orleans. So, you know, him working with the rap artist is right up my alley because, you know, it's rhythms that I've, I'm familiar with anyway. It's not difficult, you know. Hmm. Um, Jonathan, this is like maybe a, a bit of a tough question. Around the This Is It time, we were, we were sort of just wondering, as the, the preparations continued and then, of course, the, the tragedy happened, do you remember or do you feel comfortable sharing what was the last thing Michael said to you? He said at the end of rehearsal, um, after we finished and we almost finished the first run, that was the first run through, full run through, we were making um, without stopping, so to speak. We had to stop a couple of times, but for the most part, we were just almost through the first run, run through and it got so late that we had to break it for the, to the next day to finish up the last two or three songs, whatever. And then he, he talked to everyone, but he grabbed me and we stood there and he said, thank, thank you for, you sound great, you sound amazing. It's going to be so great. Isn't it going to be great? I said, yes, it's going to be great. And he said, so exciting, huh? I said, yes, it's going to be exciting. He said, you're doing a great job. I said, thank you, Michael. He said, oh, don't, he said, for what? He said, I love having you here. It's going to be great. We're going to have a great time and everything. So you did a great job today and I can't wait to tomorrow. I can't wait to tomorrow. You know, he's excited and enthusiastic. I can't wait to tomorrow. I can't wait till tomorrow. We we go through the rest and we be about first run through. Uh, so I, I'll see you tomorrow. Okay, get some rest. We'll be back at it tomorrow. And I say, okay. So he said, kind of, and he hugged me. And we said, okay, all right, bye, Mike. And he said, bye, bye, foot. And he's laughing, smiling like a little boy. And, um, you know, and then we hugged. And that was around 1 o'clock in the morning. And uh, I had no clue that I would, that was the last hug I'd get from him. Uh, uh, that last time I hear him talk, uh, I see him, you know, it was just, it's just uh, different. Looking back on it, uh, very uh, different, very you know, difficult. You know, just think about that. You know, you don't know, you don't know in people's lives. That's why you got to treat everybody with love and respect. Every time you see them, every time you're around them, every time you approach somebody, every time you address somebody, because if somebody you care about or you know, or especially if there's that, those are you related to. You know, you don't know if that's the last time you're going to see them breathing alive. You know, and animated. You know, it's, uh, I look at that now and I see why. But I'm I'm thankful. I've always 
shared my love with Michael and told him I love him and hugged him and we laughed and smiled about the old tours and we always talk about that and the kids and he met my kids and stuff and he asked me about them and stuff like remember the tours remember the Destiny tour remember we reminisce all that kind of stuff you know you you, you still smoke you smoke? I, he, I never smoked in my life he said you don't smoke huh you know I said no he said good good don't start don't start. <laughs> <laughs> you drink hot I said no I don't drink I never did you know Mike oh good don't talk don't start we talk about personal things like that you know and because we have a relationship in a personal way too not that I was there every day with him at his house or we're around him no it wasn't that when he needed me for a tour he called me but we started back where we left off as a personal love relationship between two brothers and and um, it just was spiritual that way you know we didn't have to say much we just knew and we were connected yeah and so that's what basically happened and um and that was that, you know, you know, so I was left with, you know, the results of what it became, what it is, you know, and it's very, very extremely difficult, extremely difficult. Did did you have any inkling as the tour was progressing in production? Did you have any inkling that he was battling something so, so full on in his personal life or, you know, m- many around you like Kenny Ortega and Karen Faye, they... They could pick something was up. Did you did you notice, or were you just focused on the music and the performance with him? When I first saw him, when I first got there for the rehearsals, and he finally saw each other. Finally, I um, I saw him, and he was a, dis- a distance away on the phone. When he got off the phone, he came hug me. When I hugged him, I said, "My God, there's nothing here." He was so skinny and frail. I was scared. I mean, I really had genuine fear within me. That was the first first day of rehearsal. I got there about to, I think it was the sixteenth of April, and I was afraid. But I knew Michael was always thin, but he was painfully thin then. But I also you got to remember, and I got I remember he had just went through extraordinary ordeal in that courtroom and with all that stuff that tapped down spiritually, mentally, and physically. So I knew he was trying to come back from that, rebuild himself and his health and everything from that. You know, that was so destructive. You know, and um, and I knew that maybe that was why because. I had heard on the, in the press that he wasn't eating and he was having trouble like that for doing things like that. So, but it, it shocked me to no end that how, my arms wrapped around him and touched my own shoulders, and I was like, "Oh my god!" But then when we got in rehearsals, he was fine, seemed fine most of the time. Sometimes he would see, seem tired, and but I can understand that, you know, because you know you you wearing all the hats, you know, you wearing all the hats. The promotion aspect of the show, the accounting aspect, meeting with accountants, meeting with the lawyers, you know, all this during one single day on the phone or physically, you're meeting with your, um, your management team, you're meeting um, with the wardrobe people who's measuring up, uh, talking about costumes and stuff, you're meeting with the dancers, all this is separately. You, then you got to meet, meet with the background singers and work with them and get the, that stuff right. Then you got to come eventually with the band individually, I mean, with the band by themselves. Then you got to meet with everybody and do it all together. That's what so many hats to wear. That can wear anybody down, you know, and the kind of energy he puts out. Now, even though he wasn't going full out at rehearsals, you know, you got to remember he hadn't been on tour since 87 or 89 uh, when he did them two shows. And and he had just been through a, a tremendously horrible ordeal. And it breaks, it would break anybody down spiritually, mentally and physically. So my fear was his his weight and um his physical stature, but then he showed days like, and I said, nothing wrong with him, but I'm going to worry about. He's he killing it up there. He's tearing it up. But, you know, I said the tiredness, I thought, came from, you know, all of those meetings he had to have. I just get there. You know, I drive him home. I wait until the time last minute before it's the time for me to show up at the, at the rehearsal. I drive him home, go right there in the time to rehearsal. That's all I got to do. Finish rehearsals, drive home. He had to be there early in the morning, do different things, meetings, all those meetings I mentioned, and be a part of every aspect of it pretty much, you know. That 
it was very difficult. Of course, you're going to be tired. So, you know, and it was, so I didn't think about so much fear about all of that because I knew how it takes, it always took a lot out of him, you know, because he's doing everything. So, yeah, I was there. And sometimes he would be there and he wouldn't, he'd be like, be a little disoriented about parts and stuff like that. He would know where I'm going to be my position and stuff like that. He wouldn't be with the other dancers, but I knew he was tired. Then the next day he would come in and he will kill it. I mean, like, oh, yeah, that's the Michael I know. That's Michael. He would absolutely kill it. So I knew it was fluctuating from day to day that um, he would be different. You know, uh, sometimes two or three days really great, and then the next day he's just tired. He wasn't sleeping. You know, I didn't, now, I didn't know he had the problem with sleeping. I had no idea all the years I worked with him. I didn't know he needed that stuff to sleep. I didn't know he had a sleeping problem issue. I never knew that. He kept it quiet, and I never, I never knew it put like that. You know, so that was a shock to me when I found out what was happening. I said, no, how did he kill it? How did he kill those shows on this history tour with no sleep? That made him more of a Superman. If he can play doing them shows like he did on history tour, they said he was going through that no sleep period back then, too. And um, I said, how did he do that? He's really a Superman because he was killing the shows on history tour. It was a pretty it was amazing on and on 30th anniversary special. So further to me. He he earned the cape, <laughs> the cape and the, the 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 M on his chest or whatever, because he if he was going through all of that stuff with no sleep and performing the way he did, it's absolutely remarkable. He could put on a two and a half hour show, a two hour show, under those conditions and perform like he did on the history tour and on the 30th anniversary special. So my thing is, I didn't know he was having sleep problems. Those that was something that was kept from me. I didn't know that until the trial. So. Um, but he, you know, he, he was, there was a lot of days he was right on it. He was directing things as you can see in the film. If he was, you know, I think he was, had something wrong with the sleep element and stuff like that. I know, I didn't know, I never heard the word propofol in my life until the trial. Uh, but I didn't know he was doing that stuff. But what I'm trying to say is, is yeah, he had some impairments. I could tell something was wrong, but then he come and kill it the next day. So, but I'm saying is. If he was totally dysfunctional and torn down, you wouldn't have a This Is It film, would you? There would be nothing good enough to produce it. This Is It film with. So there was enough of him there that he was trying to rebuild, as you remember, to get himself back together from a hiatus of touring since 97, and enough of him to rebuild it to give you enough great footage to do This Is It. Now, he, he, he's pulling himself back together he may not have been the right on point on everything, but he was good in a lot of things. Enough of the world appreciate that film. You know what I'm saying? So yeah. I was a lot of things I wasn't privy to know that I didn't know it was going wrong or going on. So I was blinded to that until the trials. Yeah, but what I saw, um, I saw him on some days and I saw him some days troubling to me. I was worried about him, but I knew he was tight. And I thought about it. I was trying to figure it out. I said, man, Jonathan, he, he got to do all the other things, you know, work with all the elements of the show. Of course he's tired. And I had to rationalize it that way, not thinking and knowing because I didn't know he was sick or not sleeping or taking that stuff. So, you know, my rationalization said that he's doing all these other things, meetings and rehearsals and stuff. That's why he was tired, you know. But that's where I explained it to myself, and I saw from what I saw.
Tommy Oregon guitarist on the Michael Jackson This Is It tour, and you're listening to the MJ cast. So, Jonathan, a question that we ask every single special guest that we ever have on the MJ cast is How should Michael be remembered? Michael, to remember Michael is to remember a beautiful spirit and a beautiful human being. You know, his talent is, is something altogether different. But I think the talent stemmed from his, his original spirit of being a very, very sensitive, in tune with life, in tune with, with appreciation, in tune with love, you know, on the same frequency and circuit of love. I think that's the person that, that used those elements, the love and, and the appreciation of life and the caring to become a great artist because you apply those things to your craft and what you do. And, and what does that equal? Greatness. It equals uh, the greatness of talent because you're that sensitive to, to, to um, hone your craft and develop yourself and you're more sensitive than others to do that to the degree that he did that be to become the king of pop or the king of music or the king of entertainment. Uh, however you want to look at it, you have to be extremely sensitized to to develop your craft, to be as as prolific and uh, dynamic as he was as a performer, you know, as a singer, his sensitivities and his um, his vibrato and his tone, his vocal inflections um, when he sings, you know, his, his sensitivity to the words and the expression of the words of his music uh, that make people cry, make people feel feel the emotion of his songs and relate to his songs and the lyrics of his songs. I think it all stems from the depth of love and depth of caring, depth of depth of um, humanity that was in him, and, uh, that, and like I say, most of all, depth of love. And I think that still stems from mother, uh, who, who guided him in his younger years. You know, she was Jehovah's Witness, and and that faith, they professed love and caring. They went used to go door to door. Michael used to do that with his mother, and, and I, I think she was a culmination of the of the Michael that we got to know. I mean, if for not for that, we may have maybe have a different Michael. Mother, mother, um, how should she lay the foundations uh, with the humanitarian um, traits that she instilled in him uh, through her beliefs and her the way she is? She's just like she's like Michael. She's so sensitive, so caring, so loving. Um, you couldn't find a person more so than her. And Michael gravitated toward that and became that because she, she guided him in his early life which carried over to his older life and his generosity and his love and, and going visit people like, just like he did when he was with his mother, going visit people that Joseph Hover witness, go door to door. He going to hospital to hospital, visiting people, spending time with these kids, buying them gifts and bringing them things, you know, they never expected to get, you know, making them smile when they have everything to frown about, you know, um, some of them facing the end of their life and, and then Mike shows up and then make them feel like they're going to live for another 20, 30, 40 years, you know, you know, all of that stems from the guidance of, of mother. You know, I, I see, I've always seen it that way, and I've always appreciated that. And uh, I think that's the that's the seeds of the origin of greatness that that uh, made him become 
who he became. And he applied that to his music, that same kind of passion for those things. He applied to his passion for music, which is all this sensitivity, you know, um, human sensitivity and, and magnitude and, and, mag and uh, magnification of the soul and, and of the light, you know, um, which we all are. So he was so in tune with life and life force and, and the depth of soul of the creative uh, source that it, it um, demonstrated through everything he did and that he chose to do and focus on in his life. Even his artwork is magnificent as an artist, you know. He, he, he excelled at everything. He prolific artist, you know. Um, all of that comes from depth of soul and depth of sensitivity of the spirit. And I think Mother had a lot of time. I think he was born and gifted with that before we could ever know at what stage of the birth process we can ever know that, you know, God lays his hands on us or um, we become a living human being. You know, we, you know, we don't we haven't figured that out yet. But but uh, as far as, you know, once he hit hit the earth, landed on earth, you know, and to birth, his mother, his mother had everything to do with that. Because she's just as sensitive a human being as as he, he was. He is her, and she is him. And um, what he brought to the world is basically her and her spirit um, to to uh, to basically shower the world with who she is, basically through him. So she guided him. I think they'll remember the things he's done is of his music, of course, and his creativity and the magnitude of his gifts and talent and prowess. But I think a lot of people remember what he's done for people that he didn't even know. He wasn't even related to. He had no real requirement to do for, for anybody else, but he did it. I think that's what he should be remembered for. To me, you know what I call him? I call him uh, the American ambassador of love. I think he's an ambassador of love that represents, because he's from America, so American ambassador of love, they represent the country the way he went globally. And it didn't matter what country you were from or was in, in a dilemma or, you know, in the hospital or whatever, or in an old folks home or, you know, um, or whatever you were facing. He went there as if you was an American citizen or you was basically beyond that as, as if you, which you are, a fellow human being. He didn't. He bypassed the labels that we give each other from country to country, uh, um, denotation of race or uh, color, religion, and um, and uh, nationality. He bypassed all of that, and he saw the human being. He went straight to the source. Human being, that human being needs something, needs help, whatever. So, I think that's what he should be remembered for, just as much or more so than um, his music creativity. Of course, that's the vehicle that he used to be able to do these other things. That's what people don't understand. He used the vehicle of creativity and his music and his popularity from music as a vehicle to be able to reach out to the world and, and get his messages across about the earth and about caring and love for everybody, love each other, and uh, and to go visit these people at the hospital. He used this, if you really look at it, you know, with under the microscope, he used all that popularity and stuff like that and gold and platinum albums and all the money he made to be able to have a chance to travel the world. And um, as, as a traveling salesman of love, so to speak, you know, he, he, peddled love, he peddled love and unity. So I think to me, I remember for both, of course, but I remember as being a very sensitive human being that, you know, that we unfortunately lost. We lost one of the best ones. One of the best human beings. Now they be like sheep. A lot of the world is like sheep with no shepherd. Because he was the one. He was a shepherd. 
That's a beautiful answer. Thank you, Jonathan. You're welcome. And just as we're just as we're wrapping up now, how about um, we would? I'd love to learn from you what you're up to now. Like, have you got any cool projects coming out in the future? Uh, you, you spoke about a book, which I'm incredibly excited about. Yeah, I'm working. I'm working. I've been working on for many years. I keep saying it, but I got to find a publisher, and I'm looking for publishers and ad publishers. So it's going to be a coffee table book type book, oversized, make it interesting, uh, conversation piece at people's homes. Those who choose to have it and possess it, and um, be a combination pictorial, big uh, videography of my life and career. Um, I have so many elements. Um, one of my blessings, of my I say the smart things I did. I, I am. Um, I'm a collector. I'm an um, archivist. You know, I got writings from when I was a kid. Um, I, I write mindset material, like my my social feelings or different things. I got songs that I've written. I've got uh, poet poetry. I write. I write. I have. Um, I have um, video for my tours. It's going to be included. I will tell my miraculous story on audio disc because it'll be an audio disc included in the book, and as well as in printed. I mean, you can read along, like I said, and all of this stuff. So, and um, and uh, I have I have so many elements to this book. It's going to be all inclusive. Like I said, it's going to be an audio disc and video disc inside. I got tour footage. Tra- I filmed a lot of stuff as I travel. Tour footage travel, and with me talking in the background in different cities and countries, and interesting things like that. And um, my photo uh, library is pretty extensive. And I'll solicit. I'll be soliciting photographs and video. Uh, from Madonna, Elton John, George. George unfortunately, that's another thing. My heartbreak over George Michael. Um, losing him Christmas Day it was very hard for me. You know, um, I knew he was planning on re- rejoining, putting the thing, Wham! Uh, band to get back, back together. And I was, my name was up for that for this year. But regardless of that, I lost a very dear friend and um, un- so unexpectedly. And that's a, another loss that I had beside Michael. Um, so, um, I have footage from him, working with him, and everybody I've worked with. I got, I'll be soliciting uh, all the different organizations that of the people that I work with to get some input and commentary and photographs and video to include in the book. You know, that makes it interesting as well. You know, and um, that that some things they a lot of things they have that I don't have. So contributions in that light. So I'm working on that book project. I'm writing music all the time. I I have so many songs, maybe 200 songs that it works at some stage or other. You know, I'm working on albums. I have a Christmas album that's um, is already done, and um, it's called Christmas Again. And I'm going to be promoting that this Christmas coming up. I, I got a dance music album project to do. Um, I have a, a pop music records to do. Um, smooth jazz album to do. I have a lot of things on Slate because I have music for all of these different things. I've just been working and not able to finish everything up uh, or focus on one project because I get excited about another project. So that's <laughs> one of my problem. A true artist. My mind is so uh, scattered uh, and, and, uh, and excitement about all these things. I don't finish one thing because I'm working on all these things, you know. So um, but there's a lot of things happening that I like to do and I want to do. So, well, um, Jonathan, nope. your your story yeah. is incredible. We want as many people as possible to to learn from your stories and to learn from you and to appreciate not only you as an artist and as a musician, but as a person. And I don't want anyone to miss out on this. So I'm going to quickly share where people can find you so they can cover all of the bases because you're across a lot of platforms on the internet. You're on Instagram and Twitter as Jay Moffat, MJM. 
On Facebook and YouTube, you can be found as Jonathan Sugarfoot Moffat. You've got a great YouTube channel there and you've got a website which is so much detail on your website as well and that is jmdb.world. Have I missed anything? You missed giving credit to my beautiful, wonderful fiancée, Myra Hisami, who put all of those things together and she runs my social media and she created the website. She she handles my Facebook. She has my Instagram, especially. And um, she's she's uh, one of out of the Silicon Valley uh, range of, of talented people. She's remarkable, and not only a, a stunning, the most beautiful world, woman in the world to me, um, a stunning uh, looker, looker, so to speak. So she's a, a, an incredible <laughs> talent um, of of the medium that she works in. She's truly amazing. And if you want to see her work, you go to my site, my JMDB site, and you can see her work. And as well as the Instagram, she does all my videos and and she does um, the photos, retouching, and all all the things that promotes me. And um, I'm very thankful and grateful to have her in my life and um, in my in my world of business as well. We're working on projects to do for the rest of our lives together as a company and as a team. So uh, she's extremely talented, you know, in those aspects as well as an uh, artist. So I'm very appreciative to her for and her making me be able to be seen in a global scale. Well, credit where credit is due because um, you're a very lucky man in more ways than one. She's doing a terrific job. You've got some great stuff online. Yeah, I love those videos. Truly blessed, yeah, to have her in my life. Well, we've been truly blessed to to have this amazing conversation with you and, and one day we're going to have to get you back because there's so much more to learn. <laughs> yeah. Yes, I love to come back down the street. I love it there. It's fantastic. I, I really feel comfortable there, feel natural there, you're normal. And people are so friendly and loving and caring and it's just a wonderful place to be. And so I'm looking for the opportunity to get back there on some tour or something event. Uh, you know, we'll see what happens in the near future or far future. Yeah, that sounds great. Well, thank you again, Jonathan, for coming on the MJ cast. It's been an absolute pleasure and honor. And uh, we can't wait to have you back in the future. Thank you. You're very welcome. It's my pleasure. been my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, our absolute respect to you. And, and we know that we're going to have some great feedback when this does go to air. So we really appreciate your time and the detail and also just the, the candor that you've answered with. Like you got really deep and I think people are going to really appreciate such incredible answers and really putting us there in the moment and helping share the feelings that you had. So thank you so much. You're very welcome. I'm glad that, that if they can, any of them can relate to what my life experience is and was, and I'll be very appreciative and, and happy to know that they, they, um, they, they, they appreciate my life and, and thank them for following my career. Damon's going to be becoming a father in the next couple of months for the first time. So we wanted to sort of get something of really a top quality that we can drop to our listeners when Jamin's away, 
looking after the the baby. So this is just uh, learning how to be a dad. Yeah, learning how to be a dad. So this this is such quality that we would are so grateful for. We really truly appreciate it. Well, congratulations, Jamin. That's awesome. That's an important time in life, and um, congratulations and and much love to you and your your wife and your your baby and your new addition to the family. Your your star that fell fell from heaven that's coming into your life and. It's going to be a wonderful experience. You know, I think it'll, you have, it'll change your life in ways that you can't imagine in a positive way. The MJ Cast.